Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Welcome back to the show, my little pretties. How are you all today? I know it's been a while since we've been on the air. We've been really busy over here. Um, just finishing out my first semester of a uh, doctoral program at Colorado State. And uh, man, the last two weeks were intense. Um, it was a challenge for sure. And I love having those challenges and being able to push myself to the limit. I think... I think in uh, the first two weeks of December, I maybe got a total of 10 to 15 hours of sleep per week um, because I was spending many, many, many hours, many hundreds of hours um, writing, writing, writing lots of papers. Um, So thank you for your patience with us. Welcome back to the show. This is Conversations with the Mind. I am your host, as always, Shane LeMaster, and it is so good to have you guys here. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Please continue to like and share our podcast if you find the content valuable in any way and you have a little spare change. Feel free to donate. Um, There should be a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening to. You can just click on that. You can donate anything from, I think, 50 cents up to whatever number you want. But every penny counts. Um, Yeah, because it costs money to make this stuff. But uh, the best way you can support us is definitely by listening, telling your friends and family to listen, and liking and sharing it on your social media when we post it up there. That really helps us get the biggest, widest range for our audience. Also, please go check out our YouTube page. That's the Mind Ops YouTube page. Anytime you hear me um, mention Mind Ops, whether it's the YouTube page or the the website, just remember you need to have that hyphen in there if you want to find the right page. So it's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Um, the website's the same. Uh, just add .com afterwards. Um, also, go check out the website too because I've uploaded a lot of, um, in you know, what I hope are helpful videos uh, related to a number of different mental afflictions or just really cheap production videos that I made um, just to, you know, get that information out there so it can help more people. But welcome to the show, folks, and uh, it's a great one today. Um, Take a minute right now and enjoy a track from the Arturo Complex. These guys are awesome. They played at my wedding, um, and they've written um, whatever, you know, whatever music you hear in this podcast is written by them. They're a local Denver band, really cool. And go check out their new album. They just uh, released a new album on Spotify. So that's the Arturo Complex, A-R-T-U-R-O Complex. Go check them out. All right. Take a listen.
All right, let's see if we can put a little smile on your face with this good news story. And this is a, a good one, you know, coming at the end of the year here. Um, today is, well, I'm recording this right now, New Year's Day. Um, and there's a lot of big changes happening, a new decade, a new year. Um you know, big changes, hopefully, for the better for all of us. But I found this good news story. Uh, it was kind of a recap, which I really liked um, to kind of add this in here. So it says, uh, one giant leap for mankind, top 10 scientific breakthroughs of 2019. And I'm not going to go in depth with all these, but I am going to just briefly go over all 10, just because some of these ideas I'd never even heard of until I read this article, but they're just really cool uh, technologies that came about in the last year. So number 10, uh, it says origami-inspired solar panel could start generating renewable electricity from your window. So the diagram looks like, um, you know, origami-shaped, folded uh, solar panels that you would just insert into the window frame, and it could generate uh, renewable electricity. Number nine, students design beach vacuum that can suck up microplastics while leaving all the sand. And I don't know if you guys know what microplastics are, but um, when plastic goes out into the ocean the ocean water and the current and the sun and you know the the salinity of the water kind of break down uh, plastics into what are called microplastics and sometimes these microplastics are microscopic Um, sometimes they're a little bit bigger but oftentimes it's these microplastics that are ingested by animals and kind of build up in their systems causing all sorts of issues and also, the giant floating plastic mass of, uh, you know, nastiness of trash that's, uh, I, I think it's the size of Texas or maybe two times the size of Texas floating in between um, us and Hawaii here in the, air, in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, a lot of that is microplastics, very hard to collect um, and very dangerous for the environment. Um, you know, I might even put it up there with, with some of that, uh, that old school aerosol stuff. I forgot what it's called, but uh, it was depleting the ozone, you know, all that microscopic shit that we don't even think about. Really dangerous. Number eight, researchers successfully make first ever robotic arm that can be controlled by your mind. This is some futuristic shit, people. Um, prosthetics are always, have always been interesting to me. Um One of my stepdads growing up was an ex-Navy SEAL, and he had a prosthetic arm. Um, very... Interesting. I mean, it, it was uh, not controlled by his mind, but he had certain attachments that he could, you know, screw on, screw off, and go golfing. And and uh, I think he said his golf game was actually improved once he got the consistency uh, that he received from, you know, having that artificial limb. But this is really cool uh, innovation because it now has like a connection with your mind. You know, you can, um, you don't necessarily need mechanical parts or uh, or not mechanical but um yeah i think you know what i mean like um reflex initiated movements things like that so pretty cool uh, we'll see how that progresses beyond the prosthetic arm number seven scientists developed exciting new way to produce hydrogen fuel that's safe cheap and uh, ultra efficient this is always interesting um new fuel sources uh to kind of replace Fossil fuels are always of interest to me and hopefully to you guys too. Uh, We definitely need to get off our dependency on oil. Most of our products these days are manufactured with oil or manufactured out of oil uh, and turned into plastics and 
You know, I was thinking the other day, if you could take all the artificial, you know, all the plastics in the world and just pile them up into a giant pile, how high would that mountain peak be? Think about it for a minute. You know, I can't even imagine. I bet it would be taller than Everest. Uh, who knows how many times taller. I was also thinking that same thought about uh, asphalt. There's so much asphalt on the road, guys, and uh, so many more roads now than there were even like 50 years ago, 100 years ago. If you took all the asphalt in the world from every road, every country, and piled all that into a pile, all that nasty tar and pollutant and oil-based, petroleum-based stuff, how tall would that peak be? Pretty interesting to think about when you take it into that larger context. We don't really look outside and see the street and see it as something negative. Number six, the tasty seaweed reduced cow emissions by 99%, and it could soon be a climate game changer. Um, So it looks like uh, they're using seaweed. Um, Yeah, I think I heard about this, adding seaweed to the food or drink that uh, cows uh, consume and it reduces their flatulence uh, by a lot, therefore reducing the um, methane emissions. Now, I took a class last semester called Human Environment Interactions and it was all centered around climate change and uh, how humans impact that. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, we went over the scientific uh, studies that show that uh, cow emissions actually only contribute to about 5% of um, climate change, negative climate change effects. A lot more of it is due to human um, human products, uh, industry, driving, um, all that stuff. So although the media may, you know, media and certain individuals may make a big deal about cow emissions, it's really not as big of a deal as our own uh, negative effect on the environment. Number five, first fully rechargeable carbon dioxide battery shown to be seven times more efficient than lithium ion. So this is another kind of cool renewable energy. Um, I heard about this earlier in the year, you know, using different types of molecules to generate um, energy more efficiently. And it's good to see this kind of progress. I mean, even in my lifetime, you know, the majority of batteries back in the day were what alkaline and then lithium became the thing and then now rechargeable carbon dioxide so it's always cool to see although we i think we still need to um, figure out a way to manufacture the actual physical component of the battery a little bit better uh, so that that part is a little more renewable i don't know how recyclable that is Number four, robotic arm named after Luke Skywalker enabled amputee to touch and feel again. Um, Really cool. Another prosthetic technology um, that now involves uh, somatic sensory um, inputs. So um, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's really cool. It probably connects in with with, uh, nerve bundles that are already present in the individual Uh, if you've ever heard or known somebody with a missing uh, limb there's a there's a uh, an occurrence called phantom limb syndrome where the individual can feel pain or sensation or uh, heat or cold in the limb that's actually missing and uh, as far as i've read you know these are mostly just memories still left in the neurons of the of the still um, present parts of the body and so this prosthetic could be really cool because um, it could maybe um, 
help someone's brain um, to, I guess, make healthier connections so that it's not having these phantom pain syndromes when there's no um, limb present, but maybe they will be able to look down and see an actual limb and uh, it'll make more sense in their brain perhaps and probably be less traumatic. Uh, Number three, student trekked to Yellowstone and finds bacteria that eats pollution and breathes electricity. I heard about this earlier this year. Uh, Not the breathing electricity part. That part's really cool. Um, And I actually just read something yesterday about how uh, a lot more... um, Things are are due to electricity than we even think, uh, like uh, schools of fish and uh, bees and um, the way birds flock and things, that there might be some uh, electrical component um, that's being shared and, and mediated between these, these animals so that they can stay in formation um, or track um, certain... Uh, distances and and pathways through their environment. I thought that's really cool. But I did hear about the bacteria that's eating pollution, and I thought that was fantastic. I think that's a great thing that we need to be looking more into is how can we um, maybe not take advantage, but, um, you know, how can we use biological organisms that might already be present in the environment in different ways such that, uh, you know, introducing them to you know, things like pollution and plastic and things like that and seeing if they have a positive effect. Uh, I also read this this year, too, you know, there were uh, mushroom species that were found, too, that uh, feed off of pollution and feed off of plastic and um, actually turn, you know, they can turn piles of trash into uh, usable soils and, and break down these these oils into, you know, healthier things that you can actually like grow healthy vegetables um it's it's so amazing in its ability to do that all right number two rather than end up in a landfill non-recyclable glass was found to be cheaper uh to be a cheaper new ingredient in concrete i haven't heard of this one before uh, but it looks like they're recycling glass chopping it up into little bits and incorporating it into concrete it'd be kind of cool to see uh this this kind of stuff incorporated also into hempcrete. So it's the concrete made out of hemp, um, you know, almost completely flame resistant, but breathable, uh, much more than concrete. Um, I think it's actually stronger than, than regular concrete mixes, but, um, Innovative ideas like this, adding glass to concrete, I think is really cool. Um, if you guys haven't seen an earth ship or ever heard of one, uh, Google it. It's really cool. Or ship. Um, there are these recycled homes made out of oh, entirely recycled um, things. So, like, they dig these hole, these massive holes in the ground, and then line the walls with uh, recycled tires and pack the tires full of dirt. And that's like your your structure, your foundation, your insulation, all that stuff. And, you know, they have indoor greenhouses that, that have water that recycles through the house, through the garden. Um, you know, all the sanitation is recycled. Water is collected naturally. Solar power, wind power, all these cool things. But most of these houses, if you go look at them, they're, the walls on the outside are built with, like, uh, mud, adobe, that kind of thing that's really um, regulates temperature really well. And they almost always insert glass uh plastic or uh, glass bottles and um, put them in the wall and all different colors and make these really cool mosaics. Um, I don't know. I hope to build one someday for myself. It'd be cool. 
All right, number one. Not only did scientists capture first ever image of black hole, they also detected tone pattern in ringing of newborn black hole, proving Einstein right again. I need to look more into this. Um, space and the cosmos and black holes are fascinating to me. Um, and there were a couple black hole discoveries this year. Not only this one, uh, the newborn black hole, but uh, there were some new quasars that were discovered. If you haven't looked up a, an image of a quasar, it's just freaking amazing. Like uh, It's like a black hole, um, and then these two intense energy beams just blasting out of both sides of them, going for many, many billions of miles. It's really insane. Um, a lot of energy. I probably wouldn't want to be in the path of one of those uh, quasar bursts. But another th- cool thing with black holes that I read recently was that um, – Scientists captured, and I don't know how they captured it, but they captured one black hole and another black hole colliding, and uh, one of them consumed the other one completely. Who knows what kind of implications that has? Uh, as you've heard us talk about on the podcast before, we, you know, I think that maybe black holes might be um, gateways or or some kind of portals to entirely other universes. Um, you know, we probably wouldn't be able to survive the trip through, but. Uh, it is possible that all that matter that condenses into a black hole uh, doesn't just disappear, but it goes somewhere else, maybe maybe a, a fold or a, a portal through time and space, and then maybe on the other side, an entirely other universe has formed out of um, all the matter that's been pushed through. Uh, could also be related to quasars. Really cool thing. Anyway, so our good news story today was kind of a wrap-up of 2019 and all the cool scientific things uh, that came about. I really like that stuff. And, you know, I want to give you peace of my mind, too. And it's related to, you know, what I mentioned earlier about my contemplations on waste and trash and things. And I think this is just something that we all need to consider. I think we're all getting better at talking and thinking about this kind of thing. But um, even myself, you know, I notice I don't I don't take my own carbon footprint serious enough. You know, I still uh, use my car to drive around town. I still, you know... I, I have cut down on wasting food. That's a big thing. Um, but, you know, I still buy things with excessive amounts of packaging. You know, I'll order things off Amazon and just, you know, I'll order like this little memory card and it'll come in this huge box with all this padding. And like, it's like, geez, man, you got to use all that stuff just to give me that, that little memory card. And then Christmas just happened and I spent Christmas with uh, my wife's family as well as my family and just all the trash, man. Well, not only the trash that um, that was generated from, like, uh, I don't know, useless wrapping paper. I mean, it's really pretty and all, but, you know, what purpose does it serve? Uh, it just goes in the trash afterwards most of the time. You know, cardboard boxes, tape, all the plastic that's surrounding all the kids' toys, all that stuff, man, was just insane to me. And it made me sad to think about, you know, I'm somewhat conscious of, my carbon footprint and how much I recycle and don't recycle and throw away. But there's so many people that aren't conscious at all or just don't care or think that the next generation is going to fix it. Well, I'm here to tell you folks, your quality of life right now is severely being affected by every single consumer decision that you make. You know, um, even the, you know, the toys 
the amount of toys that these kids and my family got, you know, each kid getting like 10, 15 toys and they're all plastic. They're all non-recyclable, you know, they're all going to grow out of them in a year or maybe a little bit more. And then all that stuff's going to hopefully go to someone else and get used more, but eventually it's going to end up in a landfill and landfills, you know, I need to look more into it too. But, um, as far as I know, landfills are terrible, terrible for the environment. I know that a lot of that stuff that breaks down is toxic, um, and can seep through water tables and go through, you know, soil down into aquifers and all sorts of nasty stuff. And then it affects us eventually and it affects wildlife and it affects the environment around it. Um, trash barges just dropping trash into the ocean. I think I just read an article the other day that said like one of these major cruise lines was fined like 20 some million dollars for dumping their trash into the uh, ocean and that this wasn't even the first time that they'd been caught doing it. Imagine all that stuff. I think even planes, when you're flying, just like, uh, you know, shoot human waste out of the back of it. I'm not sure if that's how it works, but, you know, even that, you know, we can, guys, we're smarter than this. We can come up with better ideas than this. Um, and we have to, our survival depends on it. So that's a little piece of my mind. You know, I'm getting a little worked up here just thinking about it. But uh, if you can, this has kind of been my gauge, okay? And again, I can probably still be better myself, but I have a recycling bin and I have a trash bin at my house. And the trash man, recycling man, comes and picks it up uh, once a week. And for me, a good sign is that if I have much more recycling in my recycling bin as opposed to trash in my trash bin then I think I'm doing all right I think my wife and I maybe maybe put one bag of uh you know a large kitchen trash bag one bag of trash in our huge trash bin uh per week and then we will almost fill up our other huge recycling bin um full of recycling um so that's kind of a, a good judge for me, like how much am I actually throwing away and wasting as opposed to recycling. And I could still do better, you know. We have we have some weeks where we'll go two weeks and only throw one bag away, and that really makes me feel good. So I encourage you guys to take a look at your own habits, too, around this. You know, it's not just for the planet, but it is for each and every one of us. Um, we need to do this individually and we also need to do this collectively because some people aren't going to give a shit and some people aren't going to do anything. So the people that do care are going to have to step up and do more work and that's okay. That's what we got to do. Okay. So our guest today, very special guest, um, Autumn Young. She has been a training partner of mine at Z's training gym for a number of years now. Um, I've known her you know, uh, both in MMA and jiu-jitsu and, and um, through hanging out uh, with the team elsewhere and really wanted to have her on. She actually just spent some time overseas in Cambodia and uh, really wanted to talk to her about her experience over there because I know my experiences over in Asia really, when I got back, really helped to change and mold um, the way that I think about my life and the way that I choose to interact with consumerism and capitalism and uh, Western democracy that is often ruled by Christianity and Catholicism, where I find more solace in things like Buddhism, uh, Gaia mentality, you know, um, 
even paganism and their connection to uh, the earth and earth spirits, uh, Native American stuff. You know, that's more my style. So Autumn, uh, yeah, like I said, she's a, a gym teammate. Um, she has degrees in both psychology and Spanish, um, and she's currently in her second year of law school, and her specialty in, in law is going to be criminal prosecution and uh, juvenile diversion. Really cool stuff. Um, I've never personally been a fan of my own lawyers because uh, they, they never – I don't feel like they ever did much for me. Uh, I didn't get my money's worth, but uh, Autumn sounds like she's – you know, she's chosen – um, well, she'll get into it. She's chosen this particular field of law for very specific reasons. Um, Autumn says she would describe herself as a catalyst for change in others. So she doesn't go out and change other people, but um, you know, other people kind of bounce ideas off of her and go to her for advice and end up finding answers. Um, you know, oftentimes in conversations with Autumn. So. It's very special to have her on. Uh, Thank you, Autumn, for being patient with me and getting this out. And thank you to the listeners for being patient as well and me getting this out. It has been a busy, hectic, up and down emotional roller coaster uh, over the last four weeks. A lot of negative things have happened in my family. A lot of positive things have happened in my life. Um, But overall, it's all for my benefit. And it's all for your benefit. So... Here we go. Uh, Conversations with the Mind with Autumn Young. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. We are here with very special guest, Autumn Young, for episode number 62. And I can already tell I need to adjust this sound a little bit. So welcome to the show, Autumn. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, let me know if you start hearing like sounds from the environment, like buzzing or anything. I might be able to help fix this because I know our listeners... Are uh, are also concerned about that stuff. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, okay, so I always like to start my podcast off with the same question. It's the same for everybody, and that is, what does the title of the podcast mean to you? And the title being "Conversations with the Mind." How does that phrase land with you? Um, and what sort of things does it spur inside of you as far as how you make meaning of that? I think for me, it's um, largely introspective um, about being in touch with yourself on like even a meta level and just kind of constantly questioning your reality and and allowing yourself to be influenced by things around you and have conversations with yourself about those influences and about how you're interpreting them and why you're interpreting them that way and, you know, kind of that influence. So the conversation for you is like, like taking all these little pieces and trying to make sense of it. But the conversation being like a good thing, yeah, right? That yeah, if you are questioning of yourself or you're self-inquisitive, you're having these discussions with yourself, then you're moving towards some kind of growth as opposed to, would you say people who don't engage their their minds in that way sort of stunt themselves or? Yeah. And I think one example that comes to mind, especially in today's world, especially is like um, making sure you're opening yourself up to the other side of political questions. Um, so one person I really like for that is actually your wife. Callie puts a lot of things on Facebook that don't necessarily agree with what I view as far as politics go. But I really like that when she puts something up, I know it's well researched. I know that, you know, she has kind of the foundation behind it. And I very specifically have people like Callie on my Facebook so that I can keep myself open to the other side of that conversation and really challenge myself when I come up against something and I read it on her page or whomever's and you know I'm like oh I don't agree with that 
challenge yourself as to why and kind of walk that through that and make sure that you have a reason and you're not just bristling, you know, because that's, you know, not the set of things that you're supposed to believe because of your affiliation with whatever. So that Yeah, I think that's such an important point that a lot of people miss is being able to surround yourself or choosing to surround yourself with people who have opposing opinions and and perspectives than you do i just went to a like a training on csu campus it wasn't really training it was a presentation but it involved an active component where we at our own tables uh we had structured discussions around political issues so the point was like we can have um they were called uh, living room conversations so we can have conversations uh that are profound with people who we know have different interests than us and that it actually helps to inform our own position and break down our own barriers within our own mind and our own biases and things like that. And it was really effective. Um, everyone at our, at our table had, um, differing, um, political views, but we were all able to find similarities in the way we were thinking around certain issues, right? So instead of focusing on, like you said, your affiliation and what you're supposed to believe and the, what you're supposed to say, we were more focused on the issue and like our personal feeling around it, whether it agreed or disagreed with like our political perspective. But I think that's so hard with Facebook. And I, I try and do the same thing I, um, because they have those algorithms where you, uh, the things that you like, you, you see, see more of, of right? Mm -hmm. So if you're constantly liking only things that you agree with, then you're just going to be force-fed more and more of that. You know, it's like a, an algorithm for cherry-picking, yeah. and you're, you're setting it up on yourself. So I like to engage with or uh, even like posts that are dissimilar from my own interests because it did, like you said, it opened up my mind in some way, made me question my belief, and whether I changed it or not, my belief, um, the fact that that post challenged me, I like that. Yeah. And so I'm going to hit that and I'll get more of that in my feed. And I, I do that as well with um, like well-written stuff. Like if it, even if I don't agree with the point at all, if it was well articulated I, as a verbal person, I really respect that and appreciate that. So I'll kind of do the same thing. Um, I like that term living room conversations going back to your training because what I like about that is it implies even if you're disagreeing with people and even if there is, you know, bristling or like, you know, in my family, we argue we're, you know. We're that kind of family, like in a good way. Um, but it implies that, you know, we're all in the same space and there's still love underneath it and that we're all going to come back to that, you know, that point of, you know, we care about each other and we can have different opinions and we can discuss them and we can get passionate about it and, uh, you know, not disqualify the other person as some someone important in our life based on those conversations. Yeah, and I think people too often connect um, probably to their disadvantage, like – um, those disagreements with people like you can you can love someone and disagree with them yeah that is totally possible but yeah. i don't think um you know a lot of people don't see that distinction and so automatically there's this response that you know if i disagree with you on one thing therefore you know we can't be friends yeah. even even if we we have a hundred other things that we do have in common yeah, and especially, um, like, I think in relationships, like in a you know, romantic dynamic, we disqualify people a lot if their perspectives don't agree 100% with whatever. You know, if you go down the checklist and something diverges, then we often are like, oh, well, never mind then. Um, and I, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother, I'd call her Tutu. It's Hawaiian for grandmother. Um, is she Hawaiian? She is, actually. Oh, nice. She's third-generation Japanese and uh, grew up in Hawaii. 
Nice. I had no idea that you you had that in your background. Uh, yeah, she's great. Um, well, she's technically my step grandma, which is why I don't like Asian. Mm-hmm. But we don't do the blood thing in my family. There's too much, there's too many divorces and too many people that uh, would be disqualified. Um, but she made a comment. I was talking to her about she had um, her and my grandfather were married for 53 years before he passed away last winter. Um, and I asked her because my grandfather could be kind of a stoic person um which i find hard to relate to as a very you know outgoing person um i asked her how did you you know deal with him kind of being that way and uh, i'll never forget it she said you know if it wasn't a moral conflict i didn't fight with him and because of that he knew that when i did it was best to give me my way because it really mattered to me or i wasn't going to put up you know a fight about it and i just think more people need to kind of ebb and flow that way of if it's not really morally against what you believe devoutly and not just, you know, a, a system of things, then then you fight. But other than that, you kind of got to, you know, be a little more go with it, in my opinion. I agree. Um, and there are those issues, too, that do come up where we do need to fight for it. It, uh, it is a moral issue. And then how do we engage in those, right? Because those are the ones that we want to be engaging in um, to move thought forward in general. So one of my um, friends who's a professor at CSU just sent me an email recently, and it was an article written about how I think it was in, I don't think it was Alabama, but one of those southern states, uh, Virginia, they were trying to pass a bill or a law um, taking away your freedom to pretty much protect yourself. Um, So they were making um, taking martial arts or instructing people in martial arts, uh, federal offense. They were trying to, uh, along with that, take away, you know, gun rights and things like that. And, and, um, say that even if you're giving private lessons, you're engaging in some form of, uh, uh, militia, like or, a propagation of violence argument kind right, of thing. And that could possibly turn against the government. And mm. so they're just going to try and squash it ahead of time. Right. Like well, the government should be afraid of its people. Sure. Absolutely. That's what I think too, but it's things like that. And I read that and it literally makes me angry. It makes me want to go down there and do something about it. But you know, I'm up here. I got, we have our own issues in our own state to deal with. But if it does, if something like that does come to us where it challenges our morals and, you know, we want to fight for our freedom of speech, freedom to own, you know, firearms, freedom to, to practice our martial arts um, because we love it and it does so much more. It actually prevents violence oh, yeah. as opposed to uh, <laughs> promoting violence. So, I mean, not only are they misguided, but those types of things, even Second Amendment arguments on Facebook, like, I'm morally, I'm morally on the side of freedom in general, and someone else trying to restrict me of any type of freedom is not okay with me. But I, I'm done engaging in those arguments on Facebook. You know, I used to. Yeah. Um, it's not the most productive yeah, platform at times. It was not, and that's the thing. It was not productive at all mm-hmm. uh, to move the conversation forward. It was just a back and forth ideological disagreement and heel digging in and yeah and yeah um so how do we talk about those issues I, and that's the thing is i think the most important part is the platform um and that's with you know the huge amount of social media we have yeah it's like that's a great dissemination of information but it's also kind of 
impeding our ability to have those conversations because everybody has so much information and you can have these arguments where you just throw up web link after web link and you know you dig your heels in and kind of feel like you're vindicated in your own point and not necessarily even be listening to the other person um i tend to be kind of an old soul in the fact that i think those living room conversations are the best way to do it um like face to face yeah absolutely. yeah there's no hiding behind a digital firewall or right. digital shield like you have to deal with the person's response to what you just said. Yeah, and and you can't get angry because then you have you have that sitting in the room. You've created that and you have to own that. Um and also I think just like <laughs> I'm definitely one of those people that if I get a text message and it can be read either negatively or positively, I'm inclined to read it negatively and I own that about myself. Um Why to, do you think that is? I don't know. Because um, I used to be like that too, but it, and it took me uh, many years and yeah. a lot of like mindfulness practice to be able to switch yeah. that around in my head. Yeah. Even sometimes now it comes up automatically and I, and like, I don't have to mm-hmm. catch it and be like, mm-hmm. oh, there's that old Shane again. And see, I have to do, I'm still in the, I have to cognitively do it. Like someone will send a text message and I'm like, why would you say that? And I'm like, no, this person loves me. This person doesn't talk mm. like that. This isn't how they treat me. That's so you have to talk yourself out of it. Yeah, yeah. But that first automatic thought, is, it was conditioned somehow, yeah. right? So where do you think that came from? Like where, uh, what in your life has conditioned you to respond in that way, like automatically to things? Um, well, <laughs> if we want to get Freudian about it, it's probably my dad. Um, I love my dad to pieces. He was a single father um, and I... I commend him very much for everything that he did for me. Um, but he was a 25 year police veteran from the East coast and he can be a very blunt, um, and abrasive person at times. Um, and so, you know, that I, it was funny that Coda and I were having a conversation the other day about how I hate the word sure. Um, because I read sure, like most men read, do whatever you want from their girlfriend. <laughs> um, because it's like, it's, you're not, if you say sure to me, I don't feel like you want to do the thing or that you're enthused about it. And I realize that comes from my parents. Like mm-hmm. if you asked to do something and the answer was sure, that meant no, <laughs> even mm-hmm. though it was because they didn't have a reason to tell you no, but the answer was really no. Um, and I think that's a huge part of, I mean, the way our parents talk to us becomes our, a lot of our inner voice becomes a lot of how we talk to ourselves. Um, and I, th- I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases it can be really negative, and that's not necessarily uh, a reflection of bad parenting. I think it's that our parents – just sidebar. So I had a conversation with my aunt. She was talking – we were talking about spankings, and she made a really interesting point. She said, the times I f- remember in my mind of feeling like I spanked my kids too hard or overdid that physical punishment was when I was scared. So my children ran towards the river and to teach them to stay away from the river, I spanked them. And I think we kind of have a similar set of things with all negative discipline as humans, right? We're much more worried about keeping people we love away from negative things. And so that tone, that influence is comes across much more strongly um, because of that fear that kind of undermines it. I, I think... And, and I think all anger is a secondary emotion. And I think fear is a lot of the primary that, that we feel anger from. Yeah, I agree. Fear and hurt yeah. also. And um, embarrassment. Yeah, well, embarrassment is a form of hurt, right? Yeah. Like your ego's just been hurt. Ow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and sometimes those are the most painful. Yeah. And people don't realize that that's, that's a big part of the picture, too, that you are so much more than just your physical self, that you can be hurt emotionally, yeah. physically, psychically, spiritually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think I had no idea that you grew up as a, uh, you know, with a single father. Um, 
You couldn't I, tell from the flannels and the MMA. Uh, well, I relate to you in a, in a way because um, I, my brother and I were raised by my mom primarily. You know, she was off and on married a few times and things, and no, no guys were sticking around or anything. So it was mostly just us three. And so I can relate to that too in that, um, you know, single parenting for them is extremely difficult. And they did what they could to raise awesome people that we are yeah they had, they had the tool they had the cards yeah. and they weren't great and they did right. the best they could and sometimes in order to gain control of situations and to help inform and train us when we were kids they had to be a little rough on us yeah um especially and, willful people like yourself yeah. and me <laughs> yeah and i accept that too um I value that because it turned me into who I am, right. you know, and, but we have the opportunity, just like everyone out there listening to this, we all have the opportunity to, um, identify those patterns in ourselves, you know, that we're repeating from our parents, mm-hmm. um, to identify them, but to do something about it. Right. You know, it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm, uh, well, there's a lot of levels to this. It's one thing to say, yeah, I do the things that my parents did to me. Right. Uh, it's another whole another level to deny that you do the yeah. things that your parents do, right? And mm-hmm. then you're just perpetuating the pattern. But it's a courageous act, I think, in, in my opinion. And something more people need to do is look at the reasons um, why we are perpetuating those patterns and do something about it. Like yeah. change it so that we don't pass that on to... Um, you know, our own kids, or even yeah. if we don't have kids, you know, to our friends and family. I don't want to treat my friends and family the way that I was conditioned, right. you know, because of my mom's, um, you know, raising of me. Yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, that's it's it's hard to break those cycles, but it's. I read an article the other day about how the fact that you endured trauma, whatever that looks like for the individual, is not your fault. But healing is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And you th- that's a gift. Because imagine if it were on somebody else, right? Imagine if it was somebody else's responsibility to heal you. What if you had to go back to the person who hurt you to fix it? No one would ever heal because, you know, you have your exes, you have parents, and, you know, you have that whole thing that that healing conversation isn't always available. So the fact that it is our job and our ability to do it is actually, I think, a blessing in disguise. Maybe not even disguise. It's just a blessing that you have the reins on that and you can do it. But a lot of people still choose not to. It's easier. Mm. That's that's it's way <laughs> to not do a thing is a hundred percent easier to, to ignore it. Yeah. yeah, and 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 to deny it and and working on yourself is really hard because you have to have those constant conversations with yourself and you have to constantly be retraining yourself. And anybody who's ever tried to quit smoking or you know sit up straight or train yourself to break a bad habit, it takes a lot of work and a lot of mental energy. And it's a hundred percent easier to not just not even touch it mm. for sure. So how do you approach it? How do you not quit? Um, I remember how great the people I have around me are and that they deserve that from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really fortunate that my whole group of friends, I, I use the phrase, um, they're what can I bring kind of people. So when you call them up and you invite them over to your house without fail, every one of my friends will always ask, what can I bring? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all of them are those kinds of people. They're considerate, they're caring, they're kind, they're gentle. Um, and I, they deserve for me to be that way in in reciprocation you know they don't deserve for me to jump down their throat when they've never done anything to cross me or to deserve that kind of you know treatment and that's really important to me to treat people that way because they they treat me that way they deserve that they've earned it mm. yeah well and um, just rewinding a little bit you were talking about you know having these 
questioning moments, these conversations in your mind that are helping to inform you, um, help you grow, help you learn, help you overcome traumas, help you overcome even mini traumas. Yeah. Um, that's what I think I love so much about uh, jujitsu and MMA is yeah. is that we're intentionally, voluntarily putting ourselves in a difficult and challenging situation um, where we are forced maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of times in the course of an hour, two hours, we're we're forcing ourselves to encounter those conversations, yeah. those self-doubts, mm-hmm. those um, emotions of anger and of hurt and of, of embarrassment when we do something incorrectly yeah. and of, um, you know, guilt trips and feeling all, like you're not good enough. Yeah. And all that. Yeah. And the ups and the highs and like, oh, I'm a total badass. I just did that. Yeah. Right. And I then having right. And then having to intentionally. Okay, calm down. They didn't you know. rub it in my face. I shouldn't rub it in there. Exactly. That's not what it's about. So that's what I love about martial arts the most. And what we do is um, that we voluntarily enter into this situation we know is going to be really tough. But we we also understand that coming out the other side, we're going to gain so many more reps yeah. with that inner dialogue, right? So many more thousands of reps than anyone in the on the street has. Oh, yeah. And so we're better able to deal with emotional stressors, with life stressors, with physical, mental, spiritual stressors. Well, and I think kind of jumping off of that, my favorite thing about training in the gym is actually the vulnerability that we all allow ourselves to open ourselves up to, right? You have to. I'm literally allowing someone to put me in a rear naked choke, and that's like people die from that. That Mm -hmm. happens in real life, but I'm allowing someone, I trust them that much, I'm literally putting my life in the crook of their elbow. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's a lot of value in practicing that kind of vulnerability and being open to it. And um, especially for men, because, you know, this is a society where we don't allow men to be vulnerable and to communicate openly. And a lot of the guys in our gym are some of the best communicators I know, I think because of that vulnerability training and that openness and that, that willingness to, you know, be that way with another person. I think that might be a big reason why so many people, I mean, you've been at the gym long enough, you see so many people come in, sign up or try it out for a week and then they're straight out the door, right? Uh, um, even people who are experienced that come in and then they roll with Z or myself or Joe and mm-hmm. we, you know, we kind of show them like, Hey, this is what we do here. Um, playing with the big boys, right? And they, <laughs> they leave in there. I think they can't handle that vulnerability, yeah. um, or they haven't been taught the tools to do it. And for sure, I wasn't taught the tools to do it. I had to discover it along the way, yeah. but the martial arts helped me in that particular process. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's also very oddly intimate super intimate <laughs> like tom, tom martin and i were having a conversation about how do you make friends when you haven't rolled around sweaty on the floor with them like mm-hmm. you don't make connections like that in the day-to-day um because you're, you're right up in someone you're in someone's face and their entire body um right and you're being tested and they're being tested yeah. to the max and you're and you're going toe-to-toe with and you have to have nothing but love behind it because otherwise you know why are you there you're just you, you're kind of ruining it doing yeah. it that way um, and I'll catch myself getting aggressive on the mat. And there's plenty of people who will attest to that, you know, where I start getting frustrated. And and you have to check yourself on that because, mm-hmm. you know, those are your teammates. Those are people that, you know, that, that you do have that intimacy and that vulnerability with. And you got to kind of take a step back when you're feeling that way. So when you get angry on the mat, and I think it applies for all of us too, you know, what we're shown on the mat is just another version of what we do in real life. Yeah. Probably, right? Mm-hmm. When we get super frustrated, we probably act the same way. <laughs> probably. Uh, and the better we get at 
at uh, dealing with it on the mat, the better we get on dealing with it on the outside too. Oh yeah. But for you, like, um, what, like when you find yourself in that angry space, um, if it's not love that's behind whatever you're doing in that moment, what is it? Do you think it goes back to that fear uh, that you were talking about? Oh yeah, for sure. I think for me, it's definitely embarrassment. Mm. Um, because I, I don't go to the gym consistently, but I have been going to the gym a while and I just get really frustrated with not feeling like I'm where I'm not at a level I want to be at. Um, not, not the, it's not that I don't feel like I'm at a level I'm supposed to be at. It's, it's not where I want to be. Um, and I, you know, I'm in this perpetual slacker cycle of, I don't go to the gym more, so I'm not great at the gym. So I don't want to go to the gym and and round and round we go. Um, so for me, it's definitely embarrassment that like people, you know, come in like Wes, he came in, you know, a year ago, probably about, and he's way better than me now, but it's because he goes every night a week to, you know, to MMA and to jujitsu and he puts in the time. Um, but it's, you know, it's hard to walk yourself through that when you're having a very visceral response to him punching you in the face. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that, that definitely comes from embarrassment, I think in Mm -hmm. in my case. So then you feel the embarrassment for sure. You Mm -hmm. feel the anger Mm -hmm. and yet you still come back to the gym. Yeah. You know, so what happens in the in-between there? I mean, when you leave the gym in an upset mood, right? Like, fuck this place. Like, I'm never coming back. Like, I suck at this. I'm never going to be better. Right. You know, what happens in the in-between from that point to the point where you're like, I want to get back in the gym. So, I mean, usually I'm I'm one of those self-deprecating people. It's not, fuck this gym. It's, what the fuck am I doing? Like, oh, yeah, yeah we turn it back on ourselves. Yeah, I'm like, sure. why, why do I suck? <laughs> um, I'm never doing that again. That was so embarrassing. But no, I... I don't know. I, just, I I think it's just that I love the gym. Um, I, I and I do have those conversations with myself in hindsight of you know like I said like Wes puts in the time or whoever you know, um, and that's really important to kind of talk yourself down that way and, and rationalize through it once you have the mental energy to do so. Mm. Um, because you certainly don't have the space in your mind to do it in the moment. I don't think so. Unless you can. Unless you have a technique to like just clear the emotion in the moment and just box it up, which I'm not much for boxing. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Compartmentalizing is what I like to say. Yeah, yeah, no. Because you can always revisit that too. You certainly don't want to sweep it under the rug and ignore it. Yeah, I like that better. Yeah, I don't have somewhere I can put that in the safe space and come back to. I'm working on that. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that's part of my ever present evolution. That should be the part of any fighter's evolution because you think about it, if a fight starts to go bad against your favor, if you're up here in your mind, saying i'm so terrible right it's not going to get better you have to compartmentalize that anger that Mm -hmm. fear that embarrassment and get back on the task if you're going to have any chance to win right so that's a skill that i think all warriors not just fighters but warriors in life too like if something shakes you yeah you have to be able to keep going yeah you know get on with life you can you can Take as much time as you need to to deal with whatever it is that's coming uh, coming your way, but you still gotta still gotta take care of business. Yeah, and know? I think if you don't, uh, there's a quote: "It's if you don't heal what hurt you, you're gonna bleed on people that didn't cut you." Hmm. And that's huge. You know, you you have to deal with that for yourself and for everyone else you're gonna touch in your life. If you're just carrying that around, you're you're infecting everybody else with it, hmm. and that's not okay to walk around life like that. See, I like your perspective there. And that's one that I, I don't hear often is you take the perspective of, um, thinking past just yourself. Like what kind of ripple effect is this going to have on other people in my life? I think, and I'm guilty of this for sure. Like when I'm self-examining, um, a lot of times I'm 
purely focused on like, how do I become a better person? How do I reach a higher state of consciousness? How do I become more compassionate? Um, and it oftentimes doesn't go beyond that. I just assume that it's going to influence others in a positive way. Whereas you intentionally think about like, I need to do this thing because it is having an effect on someone else. Um, Almost like you're doing it for them. I I think in a lot of ways I am. Um, And I think, I mean, we've seen, you always see those videos about the, you know, the ripple effect of kindness and the Mm -hmm. perpetuation of that. There's a million of them on YouTube. And frankly, I don't, humans have a much harder time feeling positively than negatively. It's a lot easier to feel negative emotions and they last a lot longer. That's really weird because we're pleasure seeking beings too. Because I think because we feel negatively Mm. a lot and it's a lot easier to slip into that. So we seek out pleasure because we feel we need it. So if positively can ripple like that, imagine how much easier negativity ripples through Mm -hmm. everybody. And it's not just, you know, there's it's ripple effect. It's 10 degrees, you know, it's, it's you touch somebody and they touch somebody else and it's the same thing, but it's a lot easier and people hold on to it a lot longer. Mm. And then we all get touched. Exactly. (laughs) Have you you ever um, uh, come across the simulation theory? I haven't. No. So it's sort of like, um, I mean, if I can put it in a pictorial form, it's sort of matrix. Mm -hmm. So, the, the theory basically says that there's more chance that we are living in a simulation than... Living in a real world. Right, than living in a base reality, okay. um, that the chances of that happening right now are... And mathematicians have figured this out and, and things like that. I've seen some research on it with the, the world. There was one that was like the world actually did end in 2012, and we were transitioned. That was one version. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we've been transitioned to a new Earth, and that's why there's discrepancies in like things that we remember. And, and the way that records are in mm-hmm. this existence of how they were. Yeah. It, and it freaked me out. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to hear about that. Um, but in relation to the simulation theory and what you were saying before, so, and I agree, I think most, most people that I know anyway, and myself included, have, for the most of my life, had a tendency to pay more attention to negative and have negative perceptions of things initially, right? And we have to train ourselves to have this positive viewpoint, this optimism. I know I do. I know some people that are just naturally optimistic. But if this is like a pervasive pattern through most people in relation to the simulation theory, do you think that it's a part of reality? It's meant to be here, the fact that... um you know, that aspect that maybe we need to see more challenges um, yeah, as part of the path towards self-discovery and growth, right? If we were just automatically seeing everything as perfect and awesome, which the Buddha has talked about as like being part of enlightened, mm-hmm. uh, is that you see everything is just perfect as it is. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, what is there to do after that? Nothing. I think right. that's why it's the ultimate level of enlightenment is you don't have any more work. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely, I think you need those challenges. I don't. It's like built in. Yeah. And you don't you don't grow without them. You know, you look at I mean, like a weird analogy that's coming to mind is Deadpool. They give him that serum and then they subject his body to stressors to see what it will respond with. And I think if this is a simulation, that's probably what uh, the negativity is here for. They are putting us there the lizard people whoever it is is putting ourselves yeah the stressors are in order to refine the mental process Mm. in order to to acquire those experiences and to grow from them i like the word refinement it reminds me of 
the the visualization I've had before and things I've told my clients too that you know this is a, a long journey and it's like we're carving a sculpture out of a solid block of granite into mm-hmm. our perfect image right and it takes time and patience and finesse finesse mm-hmm. and um you know, you got to use different tools yeah. and you can't just use a big ass chisel or a jackhammer for the whole project. Right. You got to use sandpaper and like all these different things to refine yeah. that self. And I think that's a part of maybe uh, part of our purpose for being here is that refinement, that journey in some way, whether people engage intentionally in that process or not. I think that every decision that we make and everything like that affects karma, which is further refinement. And, you know, are we adding more clay to the, to the sculpture or are we, or are we taking more of our imperfections off? off? Well, and, and the other part of that, going back to like influencing other people is the, you then get the ability to share that with other people. You know, we all, um, there's a comedian, his name's Daniel Sloss. He does a segment about how your life is a puzzle and you've got, you know, you got to put your puzzle piece together, but somebody lost the top of the box. So you're kind of just wandering around trying to find pieces and you start with the corners. You got, you know, your family, your friends, like your home and like things like that, that are your cornerstones of who you are. And then you start filling in from there. And I find that the longer I'm in adulthood as a burgeoning baby adult, <laughs> you know, we, you start exchanging those puzzle pieces with people, whether it's like super small stuff, you know, I'll see videos on Facebook about, oh, I've been using that kitchen utensil wrong my entire life. So that's cool. Um, but it's also like big stuff, you know, and, and you exchange that that currency of puzzle pieces with other people and you can all we can all be benefiting and in, in putting the picture together from that exchange. I really like that metaphor. I've never heard it. Um, said that way and I really like that Um, it reminds me of I don't know this this handing off this currency that you talk about you know I for a a large part of my life I've been worried about you know like legacy Mm -hmm. right like what am I going to leave behind that I'm going to be remembered for yeah Um, but I the no matter what I come up with, I always it always ends with, well, in like 10,000 years, that's going to be gone, right? Like any kind of thing I publish, any kind of um, change I help make in society is going to be gone eventually, maybe in a million years, right? Yeah. So then what would last on? What could actually be legacy? And I think it goes back to what you said earlier is those ripples, right? Yeah. Those ripples are infinite. Mm-hmm. Whether they're – and that's that's – kind of a big concept to hold because you, that means you have so much power that will go on infinitely past yeah. when you're dead, long after you're dead. Yeah. But the kindness I do today will ripple through people infinitely until the end of time, Yeah, people and environment. Negatively, too. Yeah, it, absolutely. It can have those ripples. So that is the legacy that I leave behind is those ripples and that energetic karmic movement that Mm -hmm. that passes through all of us in our interactions. And that, I mean, that can be scary because that's a lot of responsibility. That's a lot of power, but it can also be really exciting to know that I have that power to do that. Um, And it's also sad sometimes because once you realize you have that power and you look around and you realize other people are not utilizing that power that they too have um, or they're using it in the wrong way, then you're like, man, there's so much waste going on. Yeah. Well, and it's it's that – it's a misattributed Nelson Mandela. I forget the actual female author who said it, but it's – our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. It's that we're powerful beyond measure Mm -hmm. because that's 
it's, you know, that's a lot of responsibility to carry around. And that's a lot of pressure to feel like you're constantly needing, you know, you are you in that mentality? Are you allowed to have a bad day? Because then you're perpetuating that negativity for all time, you know, and that can be really existentially stressful. Um, but I think like, I think those ripples, but just as much as like you were talking about like publishing stuff, I think it matters while it matters. Mm -hmm. Um, I think propagating that information matters. Um, and I think, you know, like things like wives tales and cliches, somebody wrote that down at some point. Myths. Yeah. Somebody it's, it matters. It all helps shape the collective. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and I think that even if you're not getting attributed to it still in the grand scheme of everything and in the development of, of the collective, it matters. And you gotta, you, we have to put forth the effort to put that out there or it's, not going mm-hmm. to imagine if you were the only person with the puzzle piece and you didn't share it with anybody. Now everybody's puzzle might be missing that one piece. And how frustrating is it to have a puzzle with one piece missing because somebody didn't share, mm-hmm. you know? And yet that's not within our power to help that other person share. Like it has to be a personal choice. Yep. Um, like many things. Yeah. And that's another thing I, I, you know, I see in my clients sometimes and things like that is, um, you know, they, they want to control or change other people. So much, uh, so much, they want to change themselves too, but so much more focused on changing others and then finding the disappointment when they're unable to change other people. Yeah. Um, I certainly have, you know, I spent maybe the first 20 years of my life trying to do that, mm-hmm. like changing my environment, changing other people in my life, changing a girlfriend, changing, uh, whatever, mm-hmm. um, to try and feel better, uh, or different, yeah. but really it wasn't about changing any of that. It was all, yeah, it was about changing Mm -hmm. myself and the way I thought and the way I perceived and the things I valued and identifying those conditioned voices. You know, you said earlier, oftentimes our negative criticism, we hear it in our own voice, but the origins are from parents or from teachers or mentors in the past. And that we've just heard it so many times over and over that it becomes our own voice. And then we're like, well, that's my voice. I'm but, telling myself that. But really, when you, yeah, when you really self-examine and you, and you go back, you find that's not my voice, and I can let go of that. Yeah. What? Yeah. I can finally. I don't, I don't have to say that to myself. That's anymore. not useful. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's an amazing thing too. Is is being able to, you know, get on that path of internal growth, internal discovery, reassessment of values, questioning yourself, like going back to the first statement. Yeah. Conversations with your mind is an important thing for personal growth well and i going back to kind of your point about people wanting to change other people i think i've Mm -hmm. heard it a lot with um people responding to uh, people they know with addiction saying well they're not going to change until they want to change but that's everybody Mm-hmm. That's not that has nothing to do with addiction. That's human nature. Mm-hmm. You the change it has is, to come. It, it is for with addiction too. <laughs> oh, absolutely for yeah. sure. Um, but it's it's it comes from within. You you know you can't you can't force somebody else to change. And nothing, mm-hmm. no amount of crying or yelling or or, or guilt tripping or anything ever is going to make anybody change unless they want to. Um, and that you know that's I think people get really hung up on that mm-hmm. you can't you can't change other people you can't you can change you and the, I believe that the universe is rather magnetic in that you're going to get what you put out it's kind of a boomerang type of situation you know if you if you change your girlfriend or whatever it's you know you're just going to get a new one that had the same problem versus if I if you change yourself then the kind of people that you bring in are going to change just by the nature of what you're putting out into the universe and the kind of energy you're walking around with mm-hmm it reminds me of uh, the secret. Yes, you know, and absolutely. The, I mean, the secret is such a 
a dumbed down version of it. It's so much more complicated than yeah. that. It's very rudimentary. <laughs> right. But, uh, but it makes, I mean, that's how you get that message out sometimes. Uh, I think I read recently that the, the highest, um, or the average reading level of people in the U.S. is like eighth grade. Yeah. So you almost have to simplify it down to that level anyway to even make contact yeah. with most people. And that's, that's a, that's something that we have to consider. Um, kind of meet people where they are. Right. Meet people where they are. And then once they find their own footing, mm-hmm. um, then we can start to explore further. And I think that translates really into helping people, others deal with trauma as well, mm-hmm. meeting them where they are. Because, and, and I get this a lot where I'll tell people certain things that I've been through that have been traumatic and they'll say, oh my gosh, like I've never been through anything like that. And, you know, I have to, I, you know check them so to speak and say well that's that's irrelevant the worst thing i've ever been through felt the same to me as the worst thing you've ever been through it's you know it was the same parallel it it was it was devastating and it was the worst thing you've ever been through it doesn't matter what it was and i think in order to help people deal with their trauma you have to get in that foxhole with them um otherwise you're you're really not going to be able to reach them on any significant level in their own foxhole yes exactly yeah jump in with them jump in theirs (laughs) instead of trying to Yell at them and tell them what to do from your own Mm -hmm. foxhole. Yeah, exactly. Or even just pull them out and be like, everything's safe. There's, there's, you know, no more enemies. They don't know that. So you just got to get down there and them in there with them and, you know, kind of assess the situation from where they're looking at it. Sure. So you, you describe yourself sometimes as a catalyst for change. Yeah. Um, how do you jump? How do you do that? How do you jump in their foxhole? How do you, um, become someone who helps others change without, imparting your own Ish. imprint on them <laughs> your own yeah. autumnness um i think and and i don't know it may be a bit better to interview someone who has been influenced by me to get that but my assessment of it is that i, I don't go in right away trying to change them i go in with true friendship and empathy and caring and the willingness to bend over backwards for people mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, people are willing to listen to me because they trust me as someone who's not there to mislead them. Mm. Um, I'm not, and, and I'll, I'll say that to people, um, and say, when, when, when have I lied to you? When was the last time I misled you? You know, do you, do you trust me? Because if you do, you know, this is going to be a good thing for you. And, and, you know, I believe that wholeheartedly. I'm, I'm, you know, I've never led you wrong. You're, I'm somebody that you tell me you trust, you know, this is a thing that, that could be really good for you. Um, and because I don't ever approach, not ever, but I very, very, very rarely approach people with ulterior motives. And if I do, they're transparent. Um, people tend to respond to that. I think mm-hmm. not to sound arrogant about it, but I, it's, and, and it always is from a place of care. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I get that from you and I've known you for a number of years. Yeah. Um, I've never known you to mislead anyone intentionally in any way and if you do mislead someone um it's you know once you recognize it you're quick to rectify it or 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 attempt to yeah i'm gonna Uh, own it i'm gonna come to you i'm gonna look you in the eye and i'm gonna gonna say i'm sorry Mm -hmm. you know that's a huge part of that too is if if i've done something wrong you know i'm gonna come to you and be like i fucked up Mm -hmm. i'm sorry Mm-hmm. No excuses, no bullshit, no whatever. It's like that that was fucked up and that's on me and I apologize for what that did to you negatively. Mm-hmm. Cuz that's my responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I also know you as um one of the more fiery people <laughs> at the gym too. There is that. 
Um, so along with this honesty and authenticity um, comes, you know, your outgoing personality. And um, I've, you know, I've seen it rub people the wrong way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Sometimes you, I think you've even said a couple things to me that initially my initial reaction is like, whoa, like, excuse what, you. <laughs> yeah, like, what the hell did that mean? Yeah. Um, you know, and then we talked, we've talked it through and figured out, like, oh, well, that's what you meant. Um, but, Sometimes I got to talk it through myself. <laughs> right. I don't even know what I mean. <laughs> right. So, I mean, as someone who's known you for a number of years, um, I've seen that side of you for sure the vulnerability but also the authenticity and, and that's something i really value about you for sure and something i don't think a lot of people engage in and myself included yeah. um because of fear you know i wish i was more outgoing and like humorous and funny like uh some of the other people in our gym or i wish i was more um positive with my attitude like others in the gym right but i guess I bring my own flavor, mm -hmm. my own necessary puzzle piece to Absolutely. the puzzle that we're putting together as a team. Yeah. Um, and I can't, uh, I guess I can't discount that too because I'm, I'm wishing Every, to expand in other ways. Everyone that I talk to about you at the gym has nothing but positive things to say about you. And I think the number one thing that I hear feedback and that I would echo this is the calmness is that mellowness, especially when rolling. Um, and, and when I, on the few occasions that I've done gay with you, it's fascinating <laughs> because you'll, you'll, you do something, um, that not a lot of other people do, even advanced martial artists in that you'll put me in a submission. You'll let me feel it. I'm like, hello, I've, I've, this is here, this has happened, and then you'll let me out of it, and you'll continue, and you'll go to something else. And there's just kind of a very beautiful ebb and flow to that, and it's very helpful to learning um, mm. because when you just put me in it and then don't, you know, I, I say punishing lightly, like when someone gets a submission, good for them, that's amazing. But when you don't sink it in, it then gives me that a little bit of mental space in that moment to walk it back mm. and say, okay, so we're here right now. He's holding this. He's not going to sink it in. So where did this go wrong? How did this happen? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's hugely valuable in mm. jiu-jitsu, the, the reflective ability um, while in, you know, in the moment. And that is, is not something you get very often with our sport. <clears throat> so that's, you know, I, I think, yeah, I, I, you're, you're not by any means a boisterous person, mm -hmm. um, but I think that's really important. Um, I think the mellowness that you bring to the team is very valuable and, and the, the frank honesty, but you know, you're actually a very approachable person. A lot of people are quiet. I don't feel that way about because I am so loud. Um, I've, sometimes I've gotten the sense that I'm not approachable and some people have said that I'm intimidating just to look at. You can be aloof, um, mm -hmm. until you get to know you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think people pick up on that. I don't know. I, I don't think you're doing it intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're just a very reserved person. And I think in it, from what I have seen of you, you're observing other people. Um, you're wallflowering it and you're, and you're kind of collecting the information. Mm. Um, and I think I'm always collecting data. I think that's really valuable. Um, I'm studying everything around me all the time. Yeah. And and you're being in your own head with that information, you know, and that that's taking a lot of your mental energy versus me. I'm, I'm, observing people and doing things but then i'm verbalizing it immediately mm -hmm. versus you're mulling it over and there's value in both of those mm -hmm. certainly yeah yeah and i see that 
there's still some areas that I know that I want to work on too, you know, and I think it works in progress. Sure. Um, so I want to go back to this catalyst for change thing. And we were talking earlier too, about how you can't change people. Right. But I like that you, you add catalyst before that, because it's true. I mean, we don't have the ability to actually change somebody. Maybe, maybe we do. We just haven't discovered this mental ability. I think, I think some monks have been able to change matter with their minds, which is awesome to think about, right? Just like incredible. real life superpowers. The mental power of that. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, but um, but more than our ability to do that um, is our ability to be catalysts for other people to change, right? right? Um, and that's something that I've been working through and working with in my own therapy practice for a couple of years now is, you know, when I first got into mental health, I thought, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to help people. Like, I'm going to change people. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to make people better. amazing. Go me. I'm going to go heal. Yeah. I'm going to heal everybody. Right. And then I found out that uh, when people were healing, I was the smallest component of that. Um, And then when people were not healing, I was also the smallest component of that, too. So my influence, what I thought I had over people by learning psychology, and you come out of a bachelor's degree with psychology, you're like, I know everything about the mind. I know how to fuck you up (laughs) mentally. Right, or heal you, right? And and I thought I could, but um, I was, you know, quickly, you know, found out that I wasn't healing anybody, but I was helping other people find their own inner healing that maybe they didn't know they have or that they had lost somehow um, and helping them re-engage with that self-healing component. It's almost like being a parent in the in the stands at like your kid's sporting event. Like it's really important for you to be there and it matters a lot for them, but they're doing the thing. Mm-hmm. It's their competition. It's their race. It's their battle. Mm-hmm. And they got to go do it. But it's it's you need to be there. It's important to them. It matters. They notice, right? But it's at the end of the day, it's their willpower. It's their it's their fight. Right. You can't score the touchdown for your kid nope. or for anybody else. Yeah. You know, so being this catalyst for change, um, I think having that that mindset, that framework that we are not the change agent necessarily, um, but we're helping people to become agents for their own change. Right. Um, not only does that reduce pressure that's on us right. to change other people, <laughs> yeah. but I think it, it reduces, um, you know, when things go bad, it reduces the guilt. Yeah. The guilt and the misled responsibility that we sometimes place on mm-hmm. ourselves mm-hmm. for other people's failures. Feeling like I failed them. So they failed. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Or they failed because of me. Yeah. Um, you know, but that, that's another thing that I've had to deal with a lot as a therapist is when, when people fail, it's not because of anything I did or didn't do. Or when people right. succeed, it's not because of anything I did or didn't do. I might help some point someone in, in a different direction, right. but it's up to them to take it on. Yep. Same thing when I teach jujitsu. You know, I'm just giving suggestions on how to do this. This is a thing you could do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want, I want everyone to make it their own, too. Yeah. You know, and put their own little flair and style onto it. That's how you evolve. That's how you progress. That's how you broaden that collective information yeah. database. Well, and the diversity of bodies on the mat is similar to diversities of mentalities. And so it's that same kind of thing. Like, you may have to manipulate the move a little bit because, you know, I'm obviously not built like you are. So I may have to apply the move differently. And I think it's the same with your brain. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we have we all have different things, different tools that we're bringing to the table. And sometimes I got to, you know, you can rework the move that someone's suggesting based mm-hmm. on what your strengths are, what you are bringing to yeah. the table. And knowing your own strengths and weaknesses is super important, yeah. right? It is. So identifying what those are and then also having the wherewithal and the knowledge to be able to apply them yeah. where and when necessary. Absolutely. Yeah. And also have the courage to go after improving on the weaknesses and yeah, because the the thing about improving your weaknesses is first you have to admit that you have them, and that's uncomfortable to do. Mm. People don't like recognizing deficiencies in themselves, um, but if you don't, you can't ever get any better. You're going to stagnate. Right. You, you can't trend towards that level of comfortability. You know, you know, it's for, if you don't have any oxygen, the fire dies. Mm. So, what's the oxygen in your life right now? I mean, it, I'm such a, I'm a collectivist culture type of person. It's the people around me. People around you. I, I could have guessed that from <laughs> our conversation so far. I just, I have a really great group of friends and yeah. my family is super close. Um, and, you know, I go to school in Laramie, but I didn't move because mm. I don't want to be away from everybody I love here. My whole life is here and I didn't want to be, you know, removed from my entire support base that is so important to me during some of the most stressful years of my life mm. being grad school. So. You know, that was a very conscious decision I made. Yeah. And that's something I really value about having you on the podcast and having you as a friend in general is that I'm not that way. Right. And so <laughs> I, I have you around because you're, you feed off of the social mm. aspects, right? Whereas yeah. I'm like one of these people who, who I like, I would value training myself to be perfectly okay if I was the last person on earth living in a cabin in the mountains, everything's and, clear in the mental state and you can just do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, so that's something that I strive for, mm-hmm. right. In, in my life. So those are the types of skills that I'm building, whereas you're building the social skills. Um, and they're, they're both effective. They both oh, yeah. work and they're both know? important. Yeah. And they're both valuable. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. <laughs> uh, I think that that's a, a good place for us to, to pause and we'll take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back with more from autumn. <laughs> As we take a quick break from Conversations with the Mind, I just want to let you know that this award-winning episode of the podcast is brought to you by MindOps. So go check out the MindOps website, M-I-N-D-O-P-S. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back. We are sitting here with Autumn Young for segment number two of Conversations with the Mind, episode 62. Um, And I want to jump right into talking about... Cambodia. Yes, I was wondering if you were going to yeah. ask. <laughs> no, because uh, when we were first talking about doing a podcast, um, we were going to do it before your trip, and then that didn't work out. So we were going to do it right after your trip, yep. and then you got back, and that didn't work out. So I hope that it's still somewhat fresh in your mind. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to talk about your trip and just in general, you know, what was it for? And more specifically, like, what did you take from that experience? What did you learn that has helped to shape who you are? today so much um so i went to cambodia for two and a half months this summer um i was there on a fellowship from my school uh doing an internship uh with an an ngo called project expedite justice um and they do anti-bride trafficking and anti-child prostitution over there um which sadly is still very prevalent uh it's one of the last kind of corners of the world that those kinds of criminals can hide in um and they're on the up Uh, i went to 
a number of different meetings with, you know, the police force and the lawyers over there and things of that nature um, in the judicial system. And um, their ability to combat it is really on the rise, which is great. Um, but that was my primary purpose over there. But uh, I also got to do a decent amount of, um, you know, cultural things. Um, I made a pop up to Japan. Uh, my little brother is stationed up there at the naval base in South Tokyo. Um, and that was amazing. I was like, I'm not going to be on the same hemisphere as you when you're halfway across the world and not go see you. So that's one one of my bucket list places. Japan. It was. I was only there for a couple of days, but it was really cool. Um, one thing I enjoyed about Japan is it's not like it is here, where there's a very distinct separation between agriculture and city. Like, mm-hmm. in Japan, there's rice fields in the middle of the town square. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I have this one picture. It's, like, the rice fields lined up, and then it's, like, uh, a community garden, and then a parking garage, and then the subway. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. all in a row. Um, and it's it's just uh, cool to see that not being, you know, just in a, a different way of organizing society. Almost more integration than yes. separation. Yes. And something, I've studied um, Asian cultures, from, you know, across history. I took a... A history of Japan class in my undergrad. Um, Very cool. And most of those societies over over there are more collectivist, uh, more socially oriented, more um, family oriented, mm-hmm. uh, rather than you know what we are over here in the West. Uh, we're more disconnected, more independence. Uh, you know, we we value uh, independent. Uh, achievement yeah. much more than we do social achievement. The and Western cowboy type of mentality. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, both have their strengths and both have yeah. their weaknesses. But uh, I'm glad that you saw that distinction too, not just in the, probably in the people, but also in the, in how they lay out their cities and things, just yeah. the integration. One thing that did kind of bother me on a level is the dichotomy between they are a collectivist society. But both um, Cambodians and Japanese, those are the only countries I went to, so I don't know the rest of Asia, are very anti-public affection, mm. um, which I thought was interesting because it's, you know, this collective mentality of we're all in this together and, you know, one love kind of thing. And they, like, I had to, we had to, I was saying bye to my brother because I wasn't going to see him for, you know, a year, basically. Um, and we had to get off the train, hug like kind of behind a pillar to say goodbye. And then I got back on the train because we were at different stops. Mm. Like if we had hugged on the train, people would have ostracized us. Hmm. Um, and that was just, I was like, and he, he made, you know, he brought it up. I was like, oh, you, you have to give me a hug goodbye. And he was like, okay, but we have to get off the train to do it because otherwise people will seriously like stare at you and it'll be weird. And I was like, okay. Hmm. I, I just found that to be kind of an interesting thing. I made the mistake of, um, I, there were a couple of nights I got rather intoxicated in Cambodia and I, you know, I'm, a, a touchy lovey person. Yeah, I was going to say, that, <laughs> mu- that must have been pretty hard for you in those cul- cultures it, it to was. not like put your arm around people. Yes, and I made the mistake of, I even just leaned my head on a guy's shoulder in Cambodia, and that was like, that was like code for like, we're going home together. Mm. Like, it, like they are that anti-affection that that was like a very clear like sexual signal, mm-hmm. um, which was odd to, uh, that, you know, I was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Time out, what just happened here? Um, and it, it was odd for me to not, yeah, it, being such an affectionate person, even, you know, just platonically, it was, I struggled with it. Mm. Um, and I wonder what people in Thailand thought of Callie and I on our honeymoon, because we were, we were all over each other. <laughs> it's like, your honeymoon. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't know that. No. You know, so they're probably no. seeing us, they're like, oh my God, what is going on? What perverseness. Yeah, right. Yep. And yet... In you know in that co- country anyway, prostitution is legal. Yeah, so Cambodia is as well. Yeah, yep. So that's um, interesting that you know in public, normal, normal. I'm using quotations. Yeah. Normal social gestures. Um, that that's yeah. That is that is weird. It is. And and I mean, behind were, closed doors, does it change? 
Um, the <laughs> the Kamai are um, noted what uh, an expat friend of mine called them starfish lovers. What's a Kamai? Uh, that's the name of Cambodians. Oh, they're they're Kamai people. So oh. it's not the Khmer Rouge. They're actually the Kamai Rouge. Mm. So it's a common mispronunciation of the word. It's, I thought they were Cambodians. They they are, but it's it's kind of like you know it's one of those things we call them Germans or we call it Germany, but it's Deutschland. Okay, we call it Cambodia, but it's it's it is Cambodia, but they're the Kamai people. They identify as that Kamai, and okay. their language is Kamai uh, as well. Nice, um, but yes, yeah, so <laughs> they're uh, I, behind closed doors. They're not even like married people won't even like hold hands at the doors or or at, at like the table. Like mm-hmm. I would, um, I was staying at this hostel and there's a couple that owned it, and yeah, they wouldn't even like they don't even like like there's space between them when they're sitting at the table. They're not holding hands like nothing like that. Um, yeah. So how are they starfish lovers? It means you just lay there. (laughs) So they don't, they're not uh, particularly enthusiastic lovers, according Mm. to an expat. I didn't hook up with any Khmer people, Mm -hmm. but he'd been there for 10 years, obviously. I wonder if that's also reflected in their uh, porn from their country. Um, They don't, uh, porn is illegal in Cambodia. It's illegal. Yes. Oh, well, then it is reflected in their porn. Extremely conservative. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. Certainly not in Thailand. There's porn everywhere. Everywhere. And and that was what's interesting about Cambodia is like a weird love child of all the Asian cultures around it. Mm. Um, So it's, really conservative in some ways and very much not in other. Like, it has, you know, prostitution is legal. And, um, like, men uh, will bathe in the street, like, in tubs and walk around, like, in their soaked whitey tighties, like, leaving nothing to the imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, like, you don't touch other people. Um, And one of the big restrictions is you don't touch people's heads. Like, even Mm -hmm. kids. You can't even, like, rustle a kid's hair. Like, that Mm -hmm. would, people would be like, what? doing yeah they they attach a lot more spiritual significance to the crown mm-hmm. uh you know in in india and hinduism the crown chakra is yeah. like the the most prestigious um and then my uh hairstyle my chosen hairstyle the top mm-hmm. knot in japan um has religious and spiritual connotations whereas you know the longer you can grow your hair it means the more spiritually further further along the spiritual path you are mm-hmm. and if you disrespect your family they snip it off yeah they and, cut your hair right and so um that's big in samurai tradition yeah if I recall. exactly mm-hmm. so yeah that's uh so i attribute that kind of significance to at least my hairstyle but yeah. but I, it's interesting because here in the west like uh we'll give each other noogies and like yeah. pat each other on the head and yeah. it's no big deal yeah we don't even or think about like rustle a kid's head or whatever yeah, totally. and at the same time like touching a kid's head not cool but picking up someone's baby and just like walking around and holding it complete stranger totally fine totally fine totally fine just don't touch the baby's just head. Just don't touch the baby's head. You can, but you like people don't worry about other people picking up their kids. Mm-hmm. You can just like, especially um, Cambodia is traditionally a matriarchal society. So especially as a woman, I can walk around and pick up anybody's kid I want and just like literally hold it as long as I don't disappear from eyesight. Obviously, like they're like, oh, cool, whatever. Hmm. Interesting. Takes a village kind of thing. Yeah, it was really. I I enjoyed it because I love kids. Um, and, uh, you know, and that was kind of the. My fix of like physical say, connection. Is, fix? <laughs> yeah, it's like picking up people's kids and like horsing around with them. And um, in Cambodia, most stores, like especially restaurants, it's like the restaurant in the front, and then they live upstairs mm-hmm. in the same building. So people's kids are like running around their place of business, and it's not like people aren't upset about it. It's not a nuisance. It's not unprofessional. It's just the way things are. Um, and so kids will come up and they'll like make faces, and you know you get to stick your tongue out at them and chase them around the restaurant, and like everybody just thinks it's it's like totally normal, mm-hmm. which was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I loved it. So. It's it's interesting though that, um, like you said, like there's such a social and communal people 
but they aren't physical. Yeah. Because I think of, you know, other cultures, um, like some South American tribes mm-hmm. and African tribes and things that are extremely social within their own community system. Yeah. And they touch a lot. Yeah. Um, You'll greet with a mouth kiss. Like no matter what. Yeah, totally. I mean, I worked with this kid uh, when I worked at a, I worked at an adolescent youth facility, which is kind of connected to what you're interested in. Um, It was a diversion program for um, juvenile sex offenders. Okay. um, All males. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they were, you know, young, they were all teenagers. Yeah. So like 11 to 18 or 19 and had offended in some way um, on youths right. uh, younger than themselves. So naturally, you know, the social stigmas behind those populations are like, how how could you even help people like that? Yeah. Or um, just lock them away, or those people should be dead. They're or, sick, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. even me getting some, some backlash too, um, people saying like, how, how could you um, put positivity and effort into people to do that? Like, aren't there's people more deserving right. of your services? Um, so I had to fight that too. Um, where was I going with this? Oh yeah. But I was working with this kid who, uh, was a refugee from an African country. I don't remember which one, but he got in trouble here in the U S for inappropriate touching of a minor. Right. Um, but in his culture, that's just how you greeted people. Yeah. In his culture, the men, um, hold hands. Yeah. Um, you know, they greet each other with kisses on the cheek. Um, you know, they hardly wear any clothes at all. Right. Um, and they're very communal, you know, they, they pass, um, you know, kids around from different families and Mm -hmm. they, they all help. Right. So he comes over here and acts completely normal. What's normal? His society, right. Yeah. And then over here, he gets punished and thrown into one of the worst parts of the system where yeah. people get lost and forgotten about. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't. I. I don't know. I could probably count on on one hand the people that I know who actually have some sense of real compassion for. Um, for people who have offended on others. Yeah. Uh, sexually. Well, and I. I, I get really torn on that because on the one hand, um, especially as a woman, it's, you know, you're violating someone's safety inside of their own body. And that's can that carries so much weight on that victim for the rest of their life. Um, and, and they have to go on and deal with it, right? Like killing someone's awful, but this is going to sound kind of crass. It's over at that point for mm-hmm. them. Um, sex- and you don't have to live with it. Right. Sexual assault, they have to go to therapy. They they have to, you know, sometimes there's medical complications. Sometimes The whole identity is shaken yeah, up. exactly. It, it violates everything about your autonomy as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I, I had, I've had this conversation with some of my more understanding friends, and I like to, you know, people ask me about the child prostitution work, anti-child prostitution work that I did over in Cambodia. And they said, well, how do you expect to, you know, help and whatever? And I said, well... You know, the the problem is twofold, Um, and a big part of it is that we're not addressing pedophilial tendencies psychologically. And my issue with that is, imagine, put yourself in their shoes. Imagine for a second that you genuinely, you know, as a psychologist, you've, we've seen EEGs of, of pedophiles in the same area of their light, their brain lights up when, when they see kids as any other sexual fetish that other people have. Mm-hmm. And so imagine that that's you. Imagine that 
you know, by whatever dysfunction. Uh, and you, know, you don't have control of it. And yeah, it's just the way mm-hmm. that you and you look at a kid and you feel sexually attracted. Imagine how horrifying that would be. Mm. Imagine knowing how socially ostracized you were going to be if you ever told anybody. And that mm. results in massive amounts of repression. And we know statistically repression leads to violence. Mm-hmm. And so that's my issue is that we're sweeping that under the rug because it's an ugly topic and we don't want to talk about it and we don't want to help those people. But that's why it is continuing to happen mm-hmm. is because we're not addressing that on, on the primary level. What, you know, if helping victims is great, that's very important work. Mm-hmm. But if you want to solve the issue, you got to take it to the offenders and help them mm-hmm. not punish them, not lock them yeah. away, figure out what we can do to reform that. If anything, you yeah. know, and we also know that, that most of those people who offend have been offended on. Yes. And so they're all victims of trauma too, Absolutely. who probably didn't get the help. Right. Um, and Got so lost they're, in the system. Right, and they're perpetuating mm-hmm. what is now conditioned into their system. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like, you know, what you were saying about your your kid that you worked with that was a refugee, mm-hmm. that's almost their norm. Because if they were offended on, especially from a young age, which a lot of offenders were, that's integrated into what they have formulated as sexually acceptable behaviors. Or what how normal they, reality is. Right. That's what how it's supposed they, to be like. That's what they've developed as their understanding of sex. Yeah. And that's that's horrifying. Think mm-hmm. of and I, I just encourage people to like Imagine that was you. Imagine feeling that way and knowing how horrible people were going to treat you if they ever found out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting too how um, you know we like you brought up murderers. You know, we treat murderers badly. Yes, right. But we treat pedophiles even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's almost like in in the field of psychology, there's a whole branch of psychology devoted to figuring out the criminal mind yeah you know forensic psychology um you know that's what got me into psychology in the first place i wanted to uh work for the fbi and 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 figure out serial killers yeah Mm -hmm. and catch them before um you know they they did what they did but um and i don't know where i was going with that (laughs) but i don't know it's just interesting that um you know we put even though murders are bad um, and and we put them in that class of bad with pedophilia. Um, we don't have an interest in trying to, f- you know, go into the mind of a pedophilia mm-hmm. uh, offender. Um, we don't have that curiosity as to like how can we reform, how can we fix that. Yeah, uh, it's just like nope, we're not even going to touch that. And what's uh, extra? And you will with murderers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What's additionally interesting, especially in that light, is murder has always been unacceptable. Right. Even mm-hmm. go back to Hammurabi's code, like not okay to kill another right. person versus pedophilia and being attracted to kids has only been socially unacceptable within the last 200 or so yep. years. Totally relatively. And for most of our human society, uh, it's been a normal part of uh, society like Greeks and Romans. Right. That, that's that was. Well, and the other thing is, is it's entirely a social construct mm-hmm. that's made it unacceptable because at a, and, and it's never okay to do, to be a pedophile. I'm never excusing that. Mm-hmm. But, if you look at... But it's culture and context specific. And be- because biologically, reproducing, reproduction-wise, mm-hmm. caveman brain, mm-hmm. it makes sense to go for a younger, fertile being. Yeah. Right? And that's male or female. Male or female. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and and the younger they are, the more fertile they tend to be. That's biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and and s- having sex with multiple partners for men. Right. right. You know, biologically. So, yeah. you got yeah. greater chances right. as, as propagating the line. Um, and so that's the thing is that we've decided, you know, and, and 
there are obvious reasons. You know, we only decided recently kids shouldn't work in factories. And so we've kind of come to this understanding recently in human history that kids aren't just tiny little adults. You know, they're not miniature adults. They're completely different. They process different. And we have to treat them differently. Um, and we didn't give any sort of training to anyone on that we didn't teach parents how to kind of adjust to that so that's why you have people that are too harsh on their kids or too lenient with their kids we didn't teach you know anybody on how to kind of you know adjust to that um and and so we've had a lot of weird byproducts you know fallout from that lack of informational transition that's interesting you you bring up and you said um you know, kids are not small adults, and that's totally true. Yeah. You know, they're way more impressionable, yeah. uh, way more malleability in their neocortex and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. There's also studies out there um, that tell us that it's, you should that it's more um, beneficial to speak to your child as if they're an adult. So not like right. infantilizing that. It's, oh, look at the little the baby, baby talk is right. bad for development. Yeah, right. but you should you should talk to them in the same tone of voice as you would an adult and mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, using smaller, uh, more manageable words and right. things like that, obviously, but Shouldn't that's interesting tone. Right. But it's yeah. interesting. Um, there's both, both right. exist, right? right? Kids are not little adults, but it can also be effective in some ways to treat them as adults, even like conditioning, um, for athletics and things. Right. Yeah. So I would use a very similar approach that I would with an adult with muscle memory as I would with a kid. Right. But I'd also realize that the kid's muscle memory and his ability to pick up the skill is going to be way faster Especially than like the adult. tactile things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They're crazily And so there's ability. variances, but there's still an overlap there. And I think that goes back to kind of what we touched on earlier about because there is so much information out there anymore, you can get access to anything. We have a lot of strange dichotomies like mm-hmm. that. Um, where there's information on both sides and there's really founded um, research on both sides. And so walking that line becomes complicated mm-hmm. because both sides are valid. Both sides have, you know, it's like talk to your kids like they're adults and get them in athletics, but also let your kids be kids and let them go outside totally. and eat dirt and develop in that way too. You know, both are super important. And I, I don't envy parents uh, mm-hmm. because that's a really difficult job at a base level and with all of the balancing that people are expected to do with their kids nowadays of discipline your kids so they don't grow up to be, you know, a shithead, but also don't be too hard on them because it becomes the voice they talk to themselves with, you know, walking that line is unbelievably difficult. And I don't think anybody is perfect on it by any stretch of the imagination. Do you want to be a parent? I want to be a foster mom. Nice. I would love to, uh, run, um, a group home with, uh, teenagers. Nice. That's kind of the, the, dream living situation now i'm currently putting together a literature review for um for the research team that i work with through the social work department we're working on um child placement disruptions in the Mm -hmm. foster care system um and outside of kinship care but like literal foster parents that have no relation and uh that's one finding that that is common among all the literature that i'm finding is that um uh, kids who are in the teenage years, have, wants right, they have the least likelihood of achieving permanency. Yep. And um, it largely doesn't have much to do with the kids. No. It has a lot more to do with the foster parents and the training that they receive, the support that they receive from a caseworker, as well as their 
individual ability to handle behavioral issues as they come up. All kids are going to have behavioral issues, teenagers more than most. They're kids. Right. It's not about changing the kid. It's about training the foster parents to be better foster parents. So I think that's really cool that you are – you actively want to seek out those who are underserved and underprivileged within that environment. That's awesome. I think it's really important. And and you're never, I saw a post about it the other day. My, my friend shared one, I reshared it about adopting or fostering teenagers. And it, the line was, it's never too late to get a family. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. It's like, Oh, you, they'll be out of the system in a year. Who cares? That's a year I have to provide that kid with a stable home environment and to show them love. And, mm. and a lot of those kids have been bounced around from home to home to home and have never received that kind of stability. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, you know, if you're afraid of behavioral issues, don't reproduce period mm-hmm. just because there's somebody else's kids behavior issues, you know, step up fucking parent mm-hmm. like anybody else. would. you know, if your kid, if you had a kid and had behavioral issues, I hope you'd step the fuck up and parent them. Most parents do. My dad did for sure. Um, and you know, so is that what what motivated you to want to foster yourself? Is is you know seeing your dad like step up in that situation and give you that? Um, yeah, I, I had never actually thought about it, but I mean, it was a very similar situation of what you described with your mom. Is that there? You know, my dad was married at times, and but my dad was my consistent parent, and mm-hmm. he did a way better job of being both my parents than I could ever imagine doing Mm -hmm. myself. Um, You know, he's, he's, he's a man's man and he, you know, he's, you know, automotive knowledge and, and police and, you know, he was a SWAT sniper and all these, you know, guys, guy kind of thing. Um, But he also has two daughters and, you know, he used to do my hair and, you know, and he would, you know, my, he hates his birthday, but I always had a carrot cake on mine. And, you know, there was never, there was never anything I wasn't allowed to do because I was a girl. Um, which I think was really important to me. That's why I do MMA. That's why I ride dirt bikes and things of that nature because my dad never was like, you can't do that. You're a girl. You know, that was never even, I'd never even. So your concept of what was possible was not limited. At all by my gender. And I think that's because I had a single parent that was playing both roles. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like that I dress like a tomboy, but other than that, he's pretty supportive. I had the same thing with my mom around uh, spirituality. Mm. She never really forced anything down my throat and always left it open for my brother and I to explore on our own. Yeah. Um, and no matter how we chose to do that, um, the concepts and the truths that we learned through that, she was always willing to like connect with us and talk with us about that. Yeah. She may not agree that uh, you know I get a lot of my spiritual. Uh, insights from um, psychedelic drugs and things like that but uh, not a lot of moms would (laughs) right right but she's still willing to sit down and talk to me about the truths that I have uncovered and that I that I have um, you know the things I've learned about myself and about reality and about the world she's still willing to meet me on the topic yeah not necessarily on how I got to it you know my dad and I meet on um, I think on the topic of healing Hmm. Um, he he doesn't see it that way. He sees it as his like white knight syndrome. Um, he wants to come in and rescue the damsel in distress. Right, exactly. Um, but I think I get a lot of my healing nature from him in that he did, you know, try to help people and pick them up by their bootstraps and, and you know, and um, he had a an interesting amount of love for the homeless population mm. in Greeley. Um, like he he was uh, would buy. You know, uh, there was one night he was wearing long johns underneath his uniform because it was cold outside, and he was sweating. And he saw, I, I believe the guy's name was Marv, but I might be 
crossing stories from being a kid. You know, he saw him out in the middle of one of the parks in Greeley and he, you know, went to the gas station, you know, went and took off his long johns. You know, they're $80 LL Bean long johns and he went over and gave them to the guy because he's like, you're going to freeze to death, put these long johns on. Mm-hmm. And just stuff like that, that, you know, it's that kind of ripple effect of, you know, it's very possible that saved that man's life. He could have very mm-hmm. well frozen to death that night. And, and that's, I think, the side of police work a lot of people don't care to see um, because they are an authority figure. Or it doesn't get reported right. on as much, too. Exactly. And it, because kind of going back to that negativity thing, it's a lot easier to disseminate and for people to get passionate about the negative aspects. And right. The, the happy ones don't. It's hard to generate passion in your audiences if you're only reporting good things. Exactly. I exactly. try and include a good news story in all my podcasts, but uh, I hope that it, it generates something similar. Oh, that's, that's... Some kind of good feeling. Yeah, definitely. But I think, yeah, I, I don't know where I was going. Some about my dad being a healer. But yeah, I think I get it from him. Yeah. And, sure. I, you know, I as you were talking about that, I, I got this vision of, you know, your dad wants to, in his own way, do that ripple effect thing and help yeah. other people. His particular population of interest was with the homeless, yeah. you know, um, and the method that he goes about it with his white night, white night syndrome. Right. Doesn't work for you, but it works for him. Yeah. And he affects so many people in positive ways. You see that you grew up around that. Yeah. Um, and I think that. You know, it it seems apparent to me that that helped motivate and inspire your desire to want to make an impact in a similar way, regardless of if if you do it differently, you know, you're going to do it your own way and it's going to be magnificent. You know, and Actually, fostering is one of those things. Yeah. I, I called my dad because um, I was I'm in law school and obviously he has exposure to law, 25 mm-hmm. years of police work. Um, and I asked him, I was considering defense work um, for a little bit. And I asked, I said, would you disown me if I went to the defense side? And I was really struck by his response. Um, he said, no, I want you. He said, your advantage in this career field is your passion. I want you to go where you feel passionate where you're going to make a difference because that's what's best. That's what, that's where you're going to excel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just, that was, I, th- I just thought that was really selfless because I think so often parents put their expectations or their life, you know, perspective on their kids. And it wasn't, you know, I, I spent 25 years upholding the law. Now you're going to keep people from it kind of thing, which is kind of what I anticipated. <laughs> um, and it wasn't that at all. It was no, do, do, Go where go where you think you're fighting the good fight, mm. um, and that you know that was everything with my dad. It was it was it was do what makes you happy as long as you're not hurting other people or you know mouthing off. Um, be happy, you know. Mm-hmm. I was I did a lot of different things. I did track. I did swim team. I also did knowledge bowl. You know, like you I, do. I was like a very you know I did whatever I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and and every event that my dad could be at he was at he sat through hours of horrible choir recitals you know he came and saw a high school uh, rendition of father of the bride when i was an extra like i didn't even have any lines and he came and watched the movie or the the play and you know was that kind of support especially from a single parent is was just so huge in i think the confidence and the ability i have to love other people that, mm-hmm. that was i mean my dad's my hero yeah and you know your life and your story really Buck the the statistics, right? You know, most statistics around single parents raising kids will show that the kids usually have uh, maladjustment in some way uh, in their life. Whether they, uh, you know, they don't form uh, healthy relationships or they have authority issues or uh, adjustment issues or whatever, you you kind of buck that system in that um, 
your experience is totally different. Yeah. You know, your dad was that mother and father that you needed, and that propelled you to have higher confidence in yourself and passion for, you know, for wh- whatever you're passionate about. Yeah. Don't most cops hate lawyers, though? <laughs> um, my dad doesn't really hate uh, on a stance level except mm-hmm. for state troopers in Colorado. <laughs> mm. He oh, he say he hates state troopers. He, I mean, he yes. Is it kind of so, so super troopers the movie? Yes. Is it really like that? Like It's a little bit like that. So That's so funny. Have you ever seen my cousin Vinny? Long long time ago. Okay, so my cousin Vinny is to lawyers what super troopers is to cops. Like it's an extreme kind of exploitation of it, mm-hmm. but it's humorous because there is truth in it for mm. sure. Um, but no, he, he, he doesn't hate lawyers. In fact, he has quite a few, um, friends. Like when I was talking about law school, he said, well, if you want to talk to, you know, any of my connections at the Weld County DA's office or, you know, anybody like that, let me know. And yeah, my dad isn't, he, he, he's Irish. So if you offend him, he'll hold a grudge, uh, you know, he'll hold it right here. And then one day he'll die. Mm -hmm. Um, but he doesn't hate people across a category like that. He's very, he's very much his own you know, I don't care. He doesn't carry anybody else's water. Mm. If you've if you've trans transgressed against him, then you'll bear the brunt of that. But outside of that, it's he's pretty. He's he's a very fair person. Mm. So he can think for himself. I know, shocking in this <laughs> day and age. Well, I mean, and that's some of the media around police these days, and that's what yeah. um, you know. I worked in the jail here in Larimer County for a couple of years, and that's stereotype. I've seen it yeah. over and over, like. Especially with the low-level uh, police officers and guards mm-hmm. who only maybe have a high school education. Yeah. They have a really tough time thinking for themselves, and they're great at following orders. They're binary. Um, yeah, almost yep. too. But they'll follow orders even if they're unethical or yep. immoral. I saw that so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll see the more seasoned uh, veterans or um, people with a m- little more uh, like a college education where they teach you how to think critically. Right. Um, they still fit within the system but they make decisions more based off of right and wrong mm-hmm. versus uh who said for me to do this and and you know they have the ability to discern for themselves yeah. uh, that that i think is is what they mostly teach you in college anyway uh, it's yeah. not really the knowledge that you gain from the books but it's, it's the questioning right learning how to effectively question mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. and i think that may be part of why higher education settings are known for being very politically left is because you're kind of in that space um, where I don't, you know, that they are that way. And and even though I went to college and I'm in higher education, I'm, I am, you know, a, a registered Republican, but it's because of that questioning. And one of the biggest things that you should question is your government mm-hmm. and what they're doing. Um, and so I think that's because they have so much power. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and, and I think that's a huge part of that, but yeah, the, the, the people just following orders thing is, is dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. and it's dangerous in any profession. Um, we do, that's why we have mandated education till the age of 18, because we have a society understand that there is value in people having that education because it allows them to question things. It allows mm-hmm. them to do that because we're not a sit down, shut the fuck up, do what you're told kind of country. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to be. Never have been. Never have been, never will be. Yeah, they we were founded. Yeah, they tried that with us. It didn't and then work. there was some tea and a mm-hmm. whole lot of bloodshed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's it, that's not the way we do things. And I think it, it 
you know, the reason my dad isn't that way, going back to what you said, is his, he's very intelligent. He's a very intelligent person, and I think that comes with either a base level intelligence or education that you acquire mm-hmm. is that ability to question things because you have to have, you know, it's kind of Maslow's hierarchy. You have to have a foundational level of things and set skills that the base levels are getting taken care of in the back of the mind, and then, you know, the forefront can have leave to have governmental, political, spiritual questioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um you know, I, when we're talking about this following blindly, I'm reminded of one of my favorite artists, um, Shepard Ferry. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of him? I haven't. So he did the, um, you remember the Obama posters where there was like blue and red and it was almost like a silhouette of his yeah, face, yeah. right? He mm-hmm. did. He designed those. Okay. Um, but he was famous for doing other, uh, so he's an anti-propagandist. Okay. Uh, and his artwork is in the style of propaganda. I'm trying to look around to see if I have anything around here. Which I don't. <laughs> of course. But um, it's in the style of propaganda, so okay. very bold. Um, I'll show you a book of his later. Um, okay. Very bold, um, you know, only like three colors, red, black, and white, very bold uh, designs and things like that. And uh, one of his messages, so his his main um, company is called Obey. I'm sure oh, okay. you've heard of that. I so have. he used to do skateboards and mm-hmm. things like that. Now he does huge billboards and major projects. Um one of my favorite art by him um, says, uh, you know, something like um, f- obey, obey all commands following blindly is bad for your health or something like that. Yeah. Right. And yep. but it's a picture of, of someone like obeying their master. So it, it shows the propaganda right. that they would want you to see. Like, yeah, obey your master. And but then, then undermines it with the language. Right. But then the message behind it is like, no, this is what's wrong with society. Right. So I love how he does that. And he, he's very political in that sense. Mm-hmm. But he's protected by this layer of art. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, we're not all as protected no. that way. No, we're not. Um, I think we see that with individuals who try to stand toe-to-toe with powerful figures in this country a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that more than anything concerns me because I, I said it offhand earlier, but I, I adamantly believe a government should be afraid of its people. Mm-hmm. Um, I read somewhere the other day that Midwestern hunters have the sixth largest arsenal in the world. <laughs> like. Mm. Only the sixth? Yeah, it was surprising. Only the sixth, but it is the sixth. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to remember totalitarian societies have lots of arms with the government. Um, But that's, you know, that's a huge part of what our country is founded on. And and what we love about this country is that we do value the freedom and we do value our ability to question. And we don't like our freedoms being infringed upon. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's interesting that a lot of political conversations are a back and forth of... Well, I don't want you impeding on my rights, but here's you, here's this right that I mm-hmm. want to impede on on yours, mm-hmm. um, and and that's really unhelpful. Just you know, I don't think the government should have its thumb in my business, my vagina, my marriage, my you know, my intake of substances, what's in my gun case. I don't think the government has a right to any of that, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think it does. I don't think I have a right to. Do you know, infringe on anybody else's rights mm-hmm. in that regard either. It's not my business what anybody else is putting in their body or has in their closet or, you know, who they love. That's not my place. And it's not the government's either. Yeah, I think one of the biggest freedoms that historically governments have tried to take away from people, including our own, is the freedom over one's consciousness. Yeah. Uh, freedom over how to think and mm-hmm. uh, how to express those thoughts and how to, um, you know, because everything starts 
with a thought. Mm-hmm. Every big innovation that has ever existed from fire in the wheel to, you know, um, these new crazy neural net yeah. computers, quantum computers and electric cars, like that all started with a thought. It's an idea. And if others, including governments, come in and are trying to impose restrictions on how you solve problems, how you engage with your consciousness, how you uh, engage with um, seeking inner knowledge and, and questions, and uh, you know, then we're at a huge disservice. We're, we're stunting our own evolution by doing that. Yeah, um, absolutely. How was it in, because uh, I know in like Japan and stuff, they're, they're, and even in Thailand, they're mostly Buddhist. Yes. Um, so they value and have for many thousands of years the, the process of inner exploration yeah. of the mind and things, uh, something here in the West that we have been very restrictive towards. Um, but also I noticed that in Asian countries, they, they are oftentimes way more strict than we are even here in a restrictive country towards uh, substance use and uh, changing your consciousness, changing your mind state to do that exploration. Yes. I think uh, when I was in Thailand last, last if you get busted with pot um you can get a life sentence in jail and stuff um, that's a thai prison like that's right. not an american prison that's a right. thai prison um and yet they, they're all about expanding consciousness in the mind mm-hmm. and, and exploring and nature is beautiful and in and harmony and, and all valuable these things. And, right yeah. um so there's that dichotomy i think now actually thailand is actually voting to legalize all cannabis nice. which is a totally awesome but random switch. Yeah. Um, but did you notice that in Cambodia too, like um, restrictions on consciousness, restrictions on substance use, things like that? There's not a lot of um, restriction. You have to remember Cambodia is still considered a third world country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only, you know, relatively not too far out of its um, totalitarian regime. And in most ways it still is totalitarian on all but name. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's only a couple generations it removed, is. right? Uh, well, actually, it's the... So I met a gentleman who was in his 70s. He would he was in his 20s during the Khmer Rouge. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, like a generation or mm-hmm. two, mm-hmm. Um, depending upon, you know, the kind of birth rate. Um, but they um, have a huge... They have a huge problem with alcoholism, and they have a huge problem with meth. Mm. I asked what the number one substance abuse was in that country. And weirdly, and I hadn't considered this because in America, alcohol use is so pervasive and so acceptable. The answer from a Kamai person <coughs> was alcohol. And I was like, wow. That's their biggest problem. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's really weird to hear that owned. Mm-hmm. Um, because here, you know, here, probably a lot of us have some I think alcohol form. is our biggest problem oh, here, absolutely. but we're not willing to admit it. No. Absolutely. There's too much money to be made. And there's too much money being made. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I mean, that's a whole other issue. Mm -hmm. There's so many industries that run Mm -hmm. like that. You know, the video game crisis is a big one that comes to mind currently. Um, But they, yeah, so she said alcohol is the biggest one and followed closely by meth because every, it's a third world country. You can go out, I can go out and get a three, four star meal for $5. Imagine how much meth I can get for $5. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of the issue over there. And a lot of people who have that addiction go to Cambodia because it is so much cheaper there. Um, And so I think maybe the reason they're restrictive is that fear of kind of the, the the extreme that substances can be taken to. And for a lot of people are, Um, you know, you, you have to be very mentally aware 
of the pitfalls that can come with substances to use them in an expansive way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, I th- and meth, meth in general isn't really, no. um, uh, you know, you're not expanding your consciousness so much with meth. And I think the, yeah, I, like meth and heroin, I would like mm-hmm. mostly put, you know, totally on the side, heroin, opioids, you could maybe make an argument. I definitely think there's medicinal uses yes. for amphetamines yeah. and opioids um, yeah. if used properly. Yeah, but and con- conscious wise, con- yeah. um, consciousness exploration wise, not don't so think good. so. And I think alcohol either. And the problem with those three, and often how the ones that can be used for conscientious or consciousness expansion, the problem is people are using them to escape their reality rather than mm. expand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is entirely a mentality. That's entirely how you go into drug use mm-hmm. or substance use. Um, and so I think, you know, that's, like I said, it's all about your awareness and what you're intending to do and, and where your mind is going to be when you're, even with alcohol, you know, the difference, and I, you know, the difference between you can have the same amount of alcohol consumption and if you're going out and drinking with friends, you know, that can be that can be totally healthy and social and okay. Versus if you're sitting at home crying and using that as a coping method, then it's, you know, not. Mm-hmm. And so that's it's it's, it's a, the relationship that you have with the substance. And it's what you're dictates, using. Yeah. yeah. What you're using it for, what your mentality is going in. And that comes back to and I would encourage all the listeners out there to question themselves in regards to any substance that they take in. Um, how are you using it? Are you using it to cope and to zone out of the world or are you using it as a facilitator for further growth right. you can use that and you can question that with sugar uh, with how you eat with caffeine you could do it with art with yeah, music with behaviors with the books with you're sex, reading. anything yeah how absolutely. are you using these things are you using these things to escape or are you using them to get deeper into reality and to understand it even more yeah are you expanding your horizons or are you running away from them sure mm-hmm. so in cambodia um there's still restrictions on drugs. Yes. But, uh, and coming from a totalitarian um, regime previous, I mean, there's definitely some malicious mind control going on there oh, and, yeah. and definite restrictions on what people can read and think and see and be exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it like now, though, over there? Are, are they more open? I know in Thailand, like, they have tons of, they have entire channels devoted to, um, West, like, uh, American movies mm-hmm. and other cultures and things like that. So Cambodia is still <laughs> largely very technologically uh, in the past. Mm. I would akin it to about the 70s. Mm. Um, not a bad time. Not a bad time, <laughs> but a lot of people like uh, having an having a shower is a luxury. Having a dishwasher is a huge luxury. Um, you know, and so it's like that's you know you kind of have to put yourself in that mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I'm sorry I forgot your question. I totally <laughs> went on the stand. Oh, just the, the restrictions. Oh uh, yeah. So the the other thing that's unique about the Cambodian regime is they targeted intellectuals. Um, and most other totalitarian regimes target people they view as the weaklings. Mm-hmm. Um, like you look at Germany, you look at Rwanda, you look at um, uh, the Armenian genocide. That was all about a discrepancy in who they thought was superior, who they mm-hmm. thought was stronger. Um, and then they try and wipe out the weak they so try to that wipe the out strong the survive. Yeah. Right. Versus mm-hmm. with Pol Pot, he was intimidated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Khmer Rouge targeted intellectuals. They killed people who wore glasses. They wore people who spoke a, a second language. Um, they killed, you know, anything that indicated that you had, you, you know, if you were 
all the professors and colleges, anything that indicated intellectual superiority, put a target on your back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would really recommend to all listeners, if you have an interest in this, go watch uh, it's a Netflix original called First They Killed My Father. Mm-hmm. It's directed by Angelina Jolie, who has two Khmer children, the two of her children. She's adopted are Cambodian. Um, and it's from the perspective of a six-year-old girl right at the rise of the Khmer Rouge. And it, it follows her around and kind of walks through the steps of how the oppression progressed. Um, and one of the scenes is her father is... Um, being interrogated and harassed by a military official and the military official is trying to speak to him in French to get him to give himself away because if you spoke a second language and you weren't with them, you were against them. Um, and so that's this whole very stressful scene where the father is like trying to pretend in Kamai that he doesn't know what this guy is saying in French, even though he speaks French. Mm-hmm. Um, so intentionally dumbing himself down to yes. save his life. And I spoke with uh, a gentleman, his name was Sewell. He was the seven-year-old gentleman I mentioned. He was fresh out of law school when the Khmer Rouge came and he said the number one thing you did is pretend you were deaf. Wow. Pretend you couldn't hear them, you couldn't understand them, you couldn't respond to them because there was no chance of you slipping up and using a word that was too illustrious or, or you know, saying something that seemed too academic because they had complete they could walk into your home and kill you. Mm-hmm. You said one wrong word and you were dead. Um and so people would pretend to be deaf. Wow, that's crazy. That was the easiest route. I know that that's that happens elsewhere in the world too. Um and for someone who's pretty insecure, I think that's a great strategy for a ruler like him, yeah, right? Take him. out the take out all the Anybody competition, right? Yep. I think some of our current leaders use a hybrid-ish approach. Uh, Vladimir Putin comes to to mind, where he has executed people who have run against him for the presidency. He's executed business leaders who haven't fallen in line with his ideals. You know, um, even I, th- you know, I'm a I'm an American and I'm patriotic through and through, but love this country. I know. Yeah. I love this country, but I know some of our leaders have certainly done things like that. Um, and worse. Yeah. And worse and are still doing them today as we speak, you know, and the reason somebody made a really good comment about the the whole Epstein, uh, scandal Mm -hmm. and they said, well, why my, it was actually my dad and a friend of his. And my dad said, why aren't we, as a society, doing anything about that. We're making memes on Facebook and doing nothing else. And his friend made a really smart comment. He said, because we're fat and happy. Mm. You know, we're not being infringed upon and we're not starving. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that cause a revolt is is, repre- is complete oppression and, and, and hunger, genuine, mm-hmm. actual physical hunger. Isn't um, that what's going on in, in Hong Kong and things with the with the protests is the repression piece? Yeah, like absolutely. Society is finally just fed up and they're finally like, you are infringing on us. Yeah, and we're, so, and we're done. So with the Epstein thing, you know, I see, you know, and I think that's a really blatant example that you know, most people can say like, oh, yeah, that probably happened. It's he probably was probably murdered. Mm-hmm. Um Likely. <laughs> right. But they don't, you know, your point to that they're not, we're not doing anything about it. It's because, you know, it's, it's not directly connected to us. Right. It's not infringing. Um, and I, you know, I almost hate to see what it's going to take. What sort of line needs to be crossed for us to th- think that way collectively? And I think a lot of the social anxiety most of us who are conscious are picking up on right now is that kind of anticipation. Mm-hmm. America is basically sitting around wishing a motherfucker would at this point. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it's going to be. And I've been saying it for 
three years, we for the last three years, I've been saying within the next 10 years, we will have a revolution in this country. Mm-hmm. Of some kind or another. Yes. Maybe there not will, violent. There will be something. Something yeah. will happen. A line will be crossed and there will be there will be a mass protest. There will be a revolution. There will be something um, within the next seven years in this country. Mm-hmm. I'm certain of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, well, I would hope so. Yeah. Well, and you look at, you know, those who don't learn from history, right? Look at the Chilean um, uh, military coup. They, their society was very much, I, I went down there for uh, two weeks last January and we talked about the military coup. And one of the biggest things they said was the reason it happened was because it happened behind closed doors and the society was so much more advanced than really everybody around them. They kind of thought they were too good to fail. Mm. And that. That was, was their downfall. That was their downfall. <laughs> That's and been the downfall who, of so many different societies. Who else do we know that thinks we're really fucking great? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's uh, yeah, and that's been that hubris has been the downfall of most, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Ottomans. Yeah, all of them yeah. have fallen because of pride and ego, absolutely, and a lust for power. Yep, and a, a refusal to acknowledge when you're losing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like you know, every uh, the vast vast majority of great leaders have fallen because they started losing power and instead of addressing that they compensated with oppression mm-hmm. and it they a lot of them died for it mm-hmm. um, grasping exactly exactly you can't and that's that's the fatal mistake of many regimes is they 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 step one line one line too far on the oppression scale and the people revolt so then if the is part of the solution the revolution and what happens afterwards I mean, usually in history, you know, there's a revolution and then there's a reformation. Something else fills the vacuum. Yeah. Um, and it's not always the best. Right. Usually it's just another uh, of the same, another regime. Sometimes it's worse. Right. Looking with at di- you, ISIS. Oh, yeah. With different values. Um, yeah. So how do we move beyond that? Um, once the revolution happens and the people can take back what is ours, how do we <clears> – <throat> I'm almost getting the sense that – we need to learn from our mistakes and not have centralized government like you, like all other cultures in, in society have had pretty much. But uh, I like this new idea of um, blockchain, like with bitcoins and yeah, things, absolutely. decentralization. Yeah. So, and so, anonymity. Yeah. A huge part of it. Yeah. So maybe a revolution happens somewhere in the world. And instead of there being another government regime that comes in as a singular government, maybe now – um, the people become their own rulers. The people become this blockchain, this um, decentralization. Well, and, and the reason we have what we claim is a representative government is because it was inefficient to run a complete vote on everything mm-hmm. when we started it up. You'd have to have everybody mail in and count it up. And But in, mm-hmm. with today's technology and with especially the blockchain, uh, I think it's software, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That's totally possible. We could literally get each and every person with a cell phone in this country to yes. get a text message, a doodle poll yeah. on each and every issue yeah. and not be voting for people, but be voting on for issues. issues. Mm-hmm. The, <clears throat> the, um, I have a, a friend of mine who is a devout believer in actual anarchy, um, and mm-hmm. he's provided me with a lot of um, different research and kind of different informationals on what that actually looks like. Um, And one of the comments I really liked uh, that somebody made in one of the podcasts he sent me 
was uh, everybody worries, well, what happens if we don't have a government to regulate things? You know, people are going to get crazy and, and, you know, kill each other and, and it won't be a good society. Society will regulate. <laughs> they will, because when you think about yourself and the vast majority of people you know, we want a nice, polite society. Mm-hmm. That's We put the government in power because that was our goal versus we didn't really need the government because most people want to mm-hmm. live that way anyway. It's almost like the people with that argument are discounting their own ability to stop something from happening if they don't agree with it, right? I don't think it's the ability. I think it's the they don't want the responsibility. That's true, too. I mean, if you see someone, I mean, the average person, if the average person sees somebody robbing a store, their initial desire is not to stop the person mm-hmm. but is to protect their life and do whatever they say. Lay down on the floor and right. hopefully get out alive. Absolutely. That, that's not my first thought no. for sure. And I don't think it is yours either. No. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm, we're a rare breed, but we go towards danger when other people shy away from it. Well, and I think for me, it's a lot about the safety and numbers argument. Like mm-hmm. when I was in elementary school, we did an active shooter drill and they straight up told us, they said, if all of you can coordinate, there's 30 of you and one of them. You know, in a given classroom, if you all run at them at the same time, yeah, some people are going to get shot. Most people aren't going to die because if 30 people are rushing at you, most people don't have the ability to shoot that well. Mm-hmm. Um, like the vast, vast, vast majority, especially an active shooter, probably doesn't have that kind of target ability. Um, and so for me, that's the smart option. That's mm-hmm. the viable option is for everybody to take on the one because safety in numbers it makes sense and it works Mm -hmm. so i I think that's kind of i don't know that's where i go with it versus if we all shy away that person can do horrible things right even with an anarchist system like anarchy doesn't mean i think it's misrepresented as like total chaos right versus it just means no government yeah it just means self-regulation anarchy means you have no need for some external force to regulate you um like someone in your community murders someone else and the community finds out about it, they're going to do something about yeah. it and they will. Yeah. Um, they're going to work to figure out who it was and they're going to punish that person. Right. That's, that's our gut instinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, more and more with the government regulating things, I don't think it should be like, if you want to collect rainwater on your property, that's your right. I believe that if you want to have solar panels, I don't think you should have to report that to the government that you're not using electricity off of their teat. You know, I think there are so many things that, again, the government's putting its thumb in that it just has no fucking business being a part of or being restrictive of. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's kind of like what you said. It's how much of that are we going to take? Yeah. Something will happen. They'll push it too far. Yeah, and I'm hoping, you know, I'm that's the thing that I'm fighting for the most, I think, through all my work in school and research and things like that is to free up the availability for people um, to expand and explore their consciousness and come up with new novel solutions without the restrictions and the law and um, punishment coming and, from that. And the brainwashing of the media. Yeah. That has a huge, huge influence. I mean, it was like you were talking about about things you take in with substances. I would argue that's a huge one. Yeah. Is we allow ourselves to kind of. That's nutrition too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and people are taking in bad. They're eating junk food media. Mm-hmm. And it's. And they're liking negative things on their Facebook feed, mm-hmm. which the algorithm will give you more of it. If you want to be outraged, Facebook will more than happily accommodate. That's a perfect uh, technological example of that concept of the secret right yeah. whatever you put out there you're going to get back yep. well facebook figure that out it. they figured out it. the algorithm 
That's crazy. They programmed that into the they system. They mathematically established mm-hmm. the secret into the Facebook. Yeah, so whatever you like, you're going to get more yep. of. Uh, yep. Whatever you pay attention to, you're going to get more of. Whatever you decide is, uh, there's a, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the uh, analogy in the mental health community is um, having spoons. Have you heard this? Mm-hmm. So it's you only have so many spoons. And that's your mental energy. And you give spoons away to everything that you're putting mental and emotional mm-hmm. energy into. But you only have so many. So there are some days where I, you know, somebody will say something and I, I'm upset about it, but I don't have enough spoons to fight about it right now. And I'll say that. I'm like, I don't have enough spoons for this right now. Can we talk later? And I think that goes with the things you intake as well. If you, you know, if you like only things that are going to outrage you on Facebook, you're devoting a lot of that mental energy. You're giving a lot of spoons to something that large, by and large doesn't have really any true bearings on your life. And it's not going to pay you back. Yeah. You're not getting anything out of it. Right. It's bad nutrition. You're just wasting. You're eating McDonald's. Yeah. Empty carbs. Yeah. You know, there's With no your fun. mind. Yeah. It's fun and it's nice and it tastes mm-hmm. good, but you're not getting anything out of it. Right. That's going to feel like shit when you go to work out. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like crap every time I, like when I'm eating that double quarter pounder, which it tastes so good, but literally within. I can feel the grease. But <laughs> five minutes later, I'm just like, what did I do? Uh, no. What have I done? Yeah, it's totally bad. Just look at your greasy hands and Sure. And I feel that way, too, with, with bringing in negativity into my life, too. Yeah. Like sometimes anger feels great. Yeah. But I always feel terrible afterwards. Yeah. I'm like, I look back, I'm like, fuck. Right. That's. Could have done without that. Well, and especially like within the last like two, three years, I've done a lot of work on, you know, we were talking about feeling aggressive with text messages and things. That's my whole life. Um, I'm diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which um, kind of the analogy that I use for that is people have a like a volume knob on your emotions and people with borderline have learned that their emotional needs are only met when the volume is full crank. Mm. So they're responses their reactions to any situation that makes them feel slightly emotional is full crank volume mm-hmm. um and and for me most of that is anger um and so i've done a lot of work on that law over the last couple of years and i continue to try so it is possible to be able to turn it down from 11 yeah to maybe a six and with it's, training it's actually the same conversation you have with yourself when you mm-hmm. get miffed about a text message it's that same kind of conversation with your mind mm-hmm. of that's not how they meant that. That's not how this person treats me. You know, they didn't, you know, I'm building this up in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a really vital portion of that work for yeah. sure. You so, can't do that without slowing down. You can't. Yeah. You, you and, and that's the thing is it's literally cranking the volume. Mm-hmm. It's like turning it all the in way an up and snapping your wrist mm-hmm. on it. Right. You, and you have to learn to A, not crank the volume to begin with, and then also to figure out where the appropriate volume level is. Because mm-hmm. it's not, you shouldn't not be turning up your volume at all because that means you're not going to get your emotional needs met and that's not okay. Um, so it's it's step one is, okay, re- resist the urge to crank the volume. Step two, assess where the appropriate volume level is for this situation. And Walk then that crank it and then to crank that it. one. <laughs> yeah, no. I think that's a good place for us to end for today. Um, it was an awesome opportunity to have you on the show that was great uh, i know we didn't get into cambodia as much as we would have <laughs> liked to but uh it was still cool to kind of talk about the differences uh, I, d- I think a lot of us myself included uh, lead very uh, sheltered lives unintentionally you I know think so, yeah um but that's because we're all caught up in our own journey and uh and also i restrict myself from a lot of news but i, I yeah but I wanted to uh, thank you for coming on, Autumn. It Absolutely. was awesome. Thanks for having me. This is great. I hope to do it again with you soon, and um, we'll get into some of these other topics on another 
podcast. I'm into it. <laughs> okay. All right. For all you folks out there listening, make sure that you are questioning yourself and everything you do. Uh, question your values, your morals, your belief systems, your patterns. Try and discern what is yours and what is someone else's and let go of the things that no longer serve you. Until next time, this is Shane with Conversations with the Mind. Peace. Man, what a great podcast that was. Autumn, thank you so much for being here on the show. Um, hope you enjoyed your time here. Hope to have you back again. Thank you guys for listening to the show. Please go out and support. Um, if you want, you can donate to the podcast. Uh, go check out the MindOps uh, website and the MindOps YouTube site. There's lots of cool videos on there. Um, please like and share the podcast. Get it out there. And folks, um, like we talked about in the podcast, make sure that you're out there like finding avenues and opportunities to challenge yourself. Okay. That's the only way you're going to grow is through challenge. Um, and I would much rather choose my challenges than have the universe just throw challenges at me. It's going to do that anyway, but, uh, I'd much rather have some control over what I choose to challenge myself with. So go out there, find something to challenge yourself with, Take it upon yourself in 2020, this new decade, uh, to make a whole new chapter for yourself, okay? It's up to you. It's all in your hands. Nobody's going to hand anything to you. Nobody's going to do this for you. you got to go out and do it yourself. And this is, you know, this is the best time. Today is always the best time. Well, actually, I should say today is the second best time to have started something positive for yourself. Uh, yesterday was probably the best day, okay? So get on it today, guys. Get on it and um, keep listening. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.